Welcome to the Only Football Fans podcast. Basically, we're a group of 10 mates frustrated that we can't meet up in the pub every week to chat about the footy. So, we've decided to do a podcast instead. Welcome back, guys. So, tonight we're joined by a special guest. We've got Gareth Davis joining us. Um, thanks for thanks for coming on, Gareth. Thanks um, very much. And joined by Kyle, Matt and Greg to have a chat with Gareth and go through his career and see what he's up to now and, yeah, have a little chat, really, mate. Um, first things first, before we sort of get into everything, just got a couple of quick-fire questions for you. Um, who was your childhood hero? Um, it would have to be my cousin, Kevin Sheedy. Um, he, gr- he grew up locally to me uh, on the Welsh sport. Well, in, he was born in Wales, which a lot of people find hard to believe, you know, having done what he did for the Republic of Ireland. Um, and then he moved to Hereford, which was my local club. So, yeah, always admired him. And I just wish I had half of his left peg. <laughs> Fair play, mate. I think most players wish the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's your worst habit? Um, most probably being quite demanding. Of I think, and that comes from being a centre back and and wanting con- to control everything around you and in front of you. Yeah, so very demanding c- can be quite controlling at times. <laughs> uh, what's your biggest fear? Um, not being successful. Yeah, without doubt. I think most footballers would would come up with something like that, you know, losing and not being successful. It's a good fear to have, really. Yeah. Um, which team do you support? Hereford, but then, you know, it was always Everton then because of what the great Everton team was in the 80s. They were phenomenal and it was a pleasure to watch them. And last quickfire question, Marmite, love or hate? Oh, love it. And I just picked up, there was something on the radio recently yes. about having Marmite on toast and then cheese on top, melted cheese on top. Oh, it is an absolute That's deal breaker. Winner. <laughs> it is phenomenal, uh, that. <laughs> unbelievable. I'd never had it like that before. And I've always had cheese on toast. I always had my Marmite, never put the two together. Oh, it works so well. I've never had cheese on it. I say just Marmite and butter. I, 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 like, I like it pissing in butter. Like loads of butter and just Marmite mixed in it. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Marmite. Right, I've, I nearly said that. <laughs> <laughs> Extra bread as well, Carl. Yeah, yeah, carbs on carbs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so your career started, Gareth, as a YTS at Hereford. Um, so, how did that all come about? Like from growing up and getting you through at Hereford. Well, I was at Swansea as a young lad before that. And um, Ian Evans was the manager. Um, great, great coach, great manager. And, and back then, a lot of first-team managers had a lot of engagement with... Because there wasn't the academy setups as it was. Um, and the first-team managers always interacted and engaged a lot with those younger groups. So it was a... I was offered a deal there, but my passion was always being a Hereford fan... Um, I'm sure if you know you're a bit younger than me, you chaps. But Ian Bowyer, he won the uh, yeah. European Cup with with Forest. Oh yeah, he was, he was manager at Hereford at the time, and this is how amazing and how football has changed. We played 
played a friendly match between Swansea and Hereford with the youth teams. And my dad had got talking to him right. on the touchline. He said, does he fancy coming over? And I hadn't signed uh, schoolboy forms because actually it was Kevin Sheedy who said to me, never ever sign schoolboy forms because you're going to be tied to that club. So Swansea weren't really happy that I'd never do it, but they obviously didn't want to release me in any way. But I happened then, you know, out of order or not, I went and had a training session and a game with Hereford. And Ian Bowyer put me up in his house, you know, with his, you know, with his wife, his children, all there. You know, and that's the difference, I suppose, now that the game has evolved so much that, you know, back then, you know, I talk about Ian Evans, I'm talking about Ian Bowyer, you know, it was much closer and more joined up back then. And, you know, to be asked to stay at a European Cup winner's house, you know, the first team manager, the respect you have for something like that. And, you know, I obviously did all right. And he offered me, you know, my scholarship, my YTS scheme as it was back then. £24.50 my first year, <laughs> 1990. Our times have changed, eh? Yeah. So £24.50 a week and £29.50 a week as a YTS boy. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Imagine that nowadays, they wouldn't bother getting yeah. in football. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what we, I tell you what we used to do as players. It was two. Th- <laughs> the one I've got to be careful how I say it, but the first one we used to, used to go and do ID parades with the police. So you know, like you do a, have a lineup, so you'd get a tenner. So I was all right because if there was any ginger crooks, <laughs> let's go and get Gareth in. <laughs> so I would, <laughs> so I get pulled in, and you get a tenner a shot. And then the other one was, <laughs> oh, this is unbelievable. But what, why do you boys? You don't. You could go in and do a specimen because it was like you know big with you know uh, test tube babies and things like that around the time I think. And you could go and do a test a specimen, but they do it for tests and all, so you get another tenner. Bloody so like hell. my tw- my twenty four pound fifty, I was open. The crime rate was going up in um, <laughs> in Hereford because I'd get a tenner for an ID parade, and then you know my specimens would get an extra tenner as well. Fucking so I always look around now to see how many you know ginger people from the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> fucking brilliant! Your kids running around everywhere, <laughs> all over the gaff. Yeah, that is class. Oh. That's going to win you over, though, isn't it? When you get offered in like that by someone of that calibre, that's definitely going to win you in to get you at Hereford, 100%. What, the police officer or your bowyer? Well, both, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that. The best thing was about that with the, the ID parade, I got I got spotted once, ID'd, and she said, yeah, that's, it's him. <laughs> and this old lady had picked me out that I'd nicked her bag or something. So, you know. But, oh, you get your yeah, yeah, you, you, you have to give them a tenner then. Yeah, exactly. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but but those days back then as a YTS boy, it was a dream to be given that opportunity to 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 have that those first couple of years as a YTS lad. But you know, it's very different now to, from being a scholar now um, to what a YTS boy back then was. We'd have to paint the stands, cut the pitch, sweep the terraces after you know every home game. Um, and sometimes that was a punishment as well, depending on, you know, if the boys were making mistakes, being lazy as well. You know, I've been there in freezing cold weather, dark nights. But that's how, it was a bit of character building as well to see how good a person you were off the pitch 
which underpinned then who you were and what you was as a character on the pitch. Yeah, I was going to ask your opinion on that, because obviously nowadays with youth team players coming through, it's a completely different ball game. Um, do you think back then it's is the better way of doing it now or a, a bit of a balance between the, the pair? I think it's... I, I believe in a lot of old-fashioned values and beliefs, but that, that's not about how you um, train a player. But I think off the pitch, we've, we've lost and we're quite detached from good, good old-fashioned values. And I think there's a lot of... The game hasn't really changed that much. It's still a game of football. Now, the laws of the game have changed. But I think sometimes you see some of the modern players, they give and, get given so much and everything on a plate. Um, but even when I saw it back in the 90s, I remember leaving Hereford to go to Palace and I'd be picking up my kit, going down to the, the kit man's room, helping him. He said, what are you doing? You shouldn't be here. You know, that's not your job to do this. I said, no, but I've always, that's how I've been taught because there wasn't, you know, full-time staff at Hereford, etc. You know, and I'd help on match days, you know, carry you know, all the kit into the changer. Hey, don't do that. You you know, you're playing, you're starting, you do whatever. But you, I couldn't get out of those habits. And you know what? It should never have stopped because, you know, you look at the All Blacks and what how they've built their culture. And, and I think now that it's slowly coming back, or it has done in recent years, but I think more and more clubs are starting to engage in it about improving their culture to improve the individual because... Um, I went to Juventus 11 years ago to do an eight-day study visit. And one of their mottos was, the better the person, the better the footballer. You know, do your jobs off the pitch and you'll do you, your jobs on the pitch well as well, you know. So, yeah, great great time to be a footballer, I think, years ago. It's very different to now because it's about money as much as anything. Yeah. Um, you still get a great experience, but it's a very different experience to what we were as footballers years ago. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, apologies for always doing this, boys, but I always bring it back to Leeds somehow. But like you, you mentioned there, Bielsa actually brought in, when he took over at Leeds, and it ended up getting rid of a few players because of this, was exactly what you're saying there. He, he, the first task he put with all the players was to clean the surrounding areas around the stadium and the training ground, go around with litter picking, basically, because um, he had his team do a calculation as to how long it would take the average football fan to work in order to um, afford a ticket to the match. So he basically tasked the players with every week doing the same thing. You have to work the exact same amount of time that each fan would have to work in order to earn a ticket because they're coming to see you and you need to understand that. And it got it got under the, the nose of a few of the players who were out the door quite quickly because of it. But look where he's ended up sort of achieving with that same core of players and the mentality he's got into them through teaching them something like that. Yeah, I, th I think we sort of touched on it before we've gone live, but the footballer many years ago, you know, in generations gone by, was so attached to the working person. You, you mm -hmm. know, as long as you gave everything you got over 90, 95 minutes, whatever it was, they'd be happy to have a pint with you. The day you started to cheat them because they were putting their hard-earned cash to stand on the terraces, to cheer you, to shout at you now and again. And I always believe, as long as they didn't get too personal, do you know what? They have a right to their opinion. 
Every fan has a right to their opinion. Just don't cross the line. But as long as you're prepared, you know, to run through a brick wall, run as hard as you can, jump as high as you can, you know, give it your best. Fans will always appreciate that, you know, because players will always come and go. The badge and the brand will always be there. Um, but I think, you know, different managers will have different techniques and, and also managers from overseas as well. I think they're, they're bought up a little, they're a little bit more tougher in certain countries' environments. You know, recently with, with the Wells under-17s, I know we're going to go into that a little bit, but we played against Bosnia as a training camp before going into the, our qualifying tournament. And you know what? It was quite old school. You know, the, the ground that we play at, played at was, you know, very old. Um, the hotel was nice, but not as polished as what we have over here. So it was a good learning curve for the young players to realise and appreciate what they've got. And yeah, I think, you know, whether it's, you know, Bielsa, um, you know, Klopp, whatever style they've got to improve and change the culture and grow the culture in their environments. I suppose you've got to know your players. You've got to know your audience because there'll be some who buy into it and some they don't. You know, yes, there is this certain snowflake mentality in the modern, in modern life, not just in football. But do you know what? I think they don't, people don't give credit to footballers as much because they have to go through a lot to get to their end goal. So they're more challenged than what people realise. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, Greg, did you have something to, to say there, mate? I see you. Yeah, well, Gareth just touched on it there, like the sacrifice they actually take when they actually get to their end goal. They have sacrificed a hell of a lot, obviously. But I was going to say to you, touching on what you touched on before with the washing the boots, the helping out the club. Yes, they are... Well, they're, they're, they're treated like stars, aren't they? As sort of without being stars in the youth team because obviously... The club's end goal is to try and get them up there. But why has that been taken away as though there is something wrong with it? Why that hard working ethic off the pitch as well as because some people have that built in them and some don't. Yeah. I was just um, wondering like, why you thought that has been taken away over the years. I think, um, you know, it's all come in, you know, a lot of so many things are PC, aren't they? you know, and it's against somebody's rights to do this, this or that, you know, most probably, what was it, about 10 years ago, perhaps a little bit more than that, you know, they said, look, lads are being taken on to be footballers, not to clean toilets. But how many players actually stay in the game from arriving in the game at, say, seven years of age, nine years of age, how many of them are, are, are dropped off that pathway or they drop off that pathway, sorry, during their football journey. So even when they get to become scholars, two in every age group get taken on as pros. So somewhere in life, there's always somebody cleaning a toilet. There's always somebody painting a stand, a wall. There's always somebody laying a brick, anything like that. So they're life skills. So, why have we taken away certain life skills that will educate these young players to appreciate what it's like to be potentially a footballer, but also being able to cope when they go back into the real world? Because I think now becoming a footballer is so polished as well 
The reason why I think a lot of young players struggle with mental health when they are rejected from, from clubs, they haven't been nurtured in the right way with enough life skills to be able to cope when they go back into the real world. And if it was good enough for me, it's good enough for them. Hey, my two boys, they know they've got a Hoover. They've got to do the dishwasher. They've got to do yeah. the washing. They've got to dry the clothes. The other week, you know, good learning curve for my two. They chucked their washing in on a Friday night and um, Sunday night, they untouched it and they needed it for the Monday morning. You know, the one's an apprentice um, carpenter. He's worked clothes. You know, the other one, he plays football part-time in the well, in the Welsh League, but he's, he's, he does a bit of part-time work with somebody. They didn't have any of their gear ready for the Monday morning. It was still soaking wet. I ain't touching it. So they've learned from that weekend. They should have done something about it. So... You won't do that again. No, they, they've learned from it. Yeah. No, they haven't done it since. Exactly. And if they do, they know what the treatment will be. <laughs> wet clothes. <laughs> if you are modicoddled a little bit, then you you tend not to know these things. Hence why, obviously, as you, you're, you're instilling a bit of discipline, which is fine. And that's, this is what I'm trying to... Obviously, they get, they get mentally disciplined as in certain things. But, I mean, physically, as you're saying, little life skills like that. What Every footballer in your sort of era, clean boots. Even if it was just to clean the boots, still something. Yeah, it, it, life just, skills. Yeah, yeah. Alan Wynne-Jones, yeah, yeah, I'm flipping it to rugby, but Alan Wynne-Jones, the Wales captain, he plays, oh, yeah. a, he plays a full game, he and does his media interview, and he's carrying the pod yeah. across the pitch for the groundsman. He's yeah. just been to war with England. Yeah. Oh, where are we going wrong with something? Now, you're not asking kids to spend five hours scrubbing a oh. toilet and you know what? And rightly so. They shouldn't be. But there's no reason why they can't actually clean their own tools, whether that's, you know, of course, they've got to clean their own boots, clean, clean the senior players' boots, you know. I don't always agree with, you know, I, I understand the method and it's of why they do it. But sometimes the first team changing rooms are blocked off from anyone else because you've got to earn the right to get there. But you know what? Sometimes that can be so closed off, it becomes a them and us. And, yeah. you know, I remember senior players, I learned most probably more off the pitch of how to become a footballer than what I did on the pitch. Because you spend more time off it than you do on. So how you mentally prepare, you know, um, how you, that psychology of being able to know I'm playing against a big six foot four center forward on Saturday well, I want to know how a senior centre-back prepared to play against somebody like that. So, yes, there's certain things in relation to football you've got to understand, but I think a lot of life skills can underpin and help you grow that, that mental strength and ability to prepare you know, for life, for football, because there's a lot of similarities in it. Yeah, no doubt about it, mate. Um, go on, Matty. Yeah, just sort of touching on what you've you've just touched on there yourself. I mean, I think you see it in the media and you see it on um, other platforms where a lot of these young kids are putting all their eggs in one basket. You know, they've been signed by a club by nine years old. They, they continue to grow through the ranks of that club. And then some of them are 
um, from what I'm aware of, they have the mentality that that's it then. They are definitely going to make it. But on the flip side of that, if you don't have the basic life skills in place, you're going to struggle in any part of life, whether it's football, whether it's an office job, whether it's construction or whatever it is. When you're reading these horror stories about what agents are, are paying families backhanders to get their kids into the clubs and it's just, it wasn't like the football is a business nowadays. The amount of money we're talking about, there's too many zeros on the screen to print it. You didn't have that. The money wasn't in the game now. The fo football is a business now, whether you like it or whether you don't like it. And from someone like yourself, who's obviously had to, to grow up, you know, cleaning boots, sweeping training grounds, you know, it's, it's a different world. It's not even remotely close to what it was. Yeah. That, that must hurt you a little bit in the sense that, you must think, well, I had to have it tough. Why are they made to have it so easy? Because let's have it right. Some of these kids are 17, 18 years old and they're probably on 25, 30 grand a week, like the, the brighter prospect ones. Without even, and they're not even on the bench of a professional club. They're in the, they're in the under 20s or under 21s or whatever you want to call it. And made for life. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I just think it's obscene, to be honest. It's an ever changing environment. Yeah. And life and the world evolves. And you know what? I, Fair play to them. That's that's the way the world works, it's, you yeah. know, and things have changed. You can't be bitter and twisted over it. However, we're still human beings. Yeah. And do you know what? I used to have to flush a toilet 20 years ago, and they flush the toilet exactly the same way now. Yeah. So somebody's got to put bleach on it. Somebody's got to look after it. So everyone, we've all got to have life skills, you know, whether it's at the training ground or in your own home. So... I think the point I'm trying to make is, do you know what? Life hasn't really changed. And us as good, you know, being good people, having a better understanding. Um, you know, I remember my first day I walked into Hereford. Um, the physio was the kit man as well. And he was an ex-goalkeeper, hands like shovels. I've got my, my bags. I've come from home. My first opening day of pre-season, 16 years of age. As I've come through the door, he's got wallop. Hit me on the side of the head. My ears ringing and I've gone, in hell, Pete, what's that for? It's me again. I went, hell, my, my ears ringing like, I go, what was that for? Well, he said, the first one was just to warn you and for you to remember who you are, what you are and where you are at all times. Respect yourself, <laughs> others and the environment at all times. He said, I said, well, what was the second one for? He said, because you told me to... You know, <laughs> you know and, and it sticks with me. You know, that's 30 years ago. Mad, uh, isn't it? But that, that, that value of remembering who you are, what you are, and where you are, you know, people say about representing the badge. You're not. You're rep if you represent yourself and your family correctly... <clears throat> you're going to deliver a performance for the club and the, or the badge anyway. It doesn't matter who you're playing for. But most importantly, you know, it's about respecting yourself, others, and the environment at all times. And I think and that's not saying players don't know. Don't get me wrong. You know, there's so many good people, you know. But I think if you're lucky enough to stay in the game, you'll always be all right. But for those who are rejected or removed from it for you know, whether they're deemed not good enough or they have injury problems and then they have those setbacks, how do they adapt when they haven't been supported with those life skills? Yeah, of course. I mean, can you imagine now if that happened in this day and age, the lawyer's on speed dial one, like 
that that person's probably going to get sacked from their job pending a review if they. Oh, it'd be in the nick before the end of the week. Yeah, it just wouldn't. It, nowadays, that just wouldn't happen at all. Not I even. just think, though, the kids, if if you was to tell these kids, clean the boots, do this, do the chores, the only ones that have a problem with it, they're not going to, they've not got the right attitude straight away. You'd sort yeah. of know anyway. Really? I think a lot of people no. that want to put the work in and want to, and, and, and want to do it, but if you said to these kids that, you know, they would do it. I, I don't actually think they would have a proper, an actual problem with doing it. I really don't. And you might get a handful that don't. But again, that's where I think you could separate the ones where, yeah, right, right attitude, wrong attitude, off you pop. Yeah, and then, yeah. and then, that, then, then maybe they may realise, oh, this I'm is fucked like, up this, here. This is or, part or, you know, in order yeah, that's what I'm saying. We've, 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 everyone said it. It's for me. It's just a life building. It's, it's yeah, all yeah. about life building. It, it'll make you a better man in the long term, a better yeah. person. You know, so I'd, yeah. Somebody's got to, somebody's got to do a job, whatever job that is. Exactly. Why can't we all help each other to do the job? So after training, doesn't matter what environment, whether I'm coaching uh, the 17s or I even coach, you know, in my local area, I, I like to co- just go and re-engage with like the under sevens, under nines with the local club. I ask them to pick up the cones afterwards. Okay, you do it in a more fun way. The 17s after we've trained, they're your tools. We've set it up for you. If we all give a little bit, pick up the cones and I've done it with senior players as well. You know, let's all share, you know, and have a bit of ownership on, on the tools that we use. And you know what? It's, it, it saves time for one, but you start pulling everyone together and, you know, it's more equal, you know, everyone yeah, feels more equal definitely, and, yeah. and the respect is there. Yeah. Well, like I said, you come through um, at Hereford, like doing the YTS there. Um, then what was that step into the, the senior team? Like you got into the first team in 1992. What was that step like going into men's professional football from being a YTS and being a kid? Well, most probably the biggest thing that supported me was I played for my local team at 13 years of age. I played senior football. Wow. Um, I came on as a, I remember coming on as a, on as a sub. Actually, somebody was talking to me uh, in between the lockdowns as in the local pub having a pint. And uh, he said, do you remember coming on as a sub and ruining, ending that goalkeeper's career? I'd gone up for, so I started off as I meant to go on with the way I played. Um, And I landed on this keeper's ankle. He never played again. And, uh, but I was 13 years of age, played, played men's football. So I suppose I had, I had the mentality and the qualities to be able to transition into it. But back then, see, uh, reserve team football was more competitive than perhaps what people have saying, you know, people have said, you know, 21s and 23s isn't as competitive as the old school 23s league, uh, sorry, reserve league. But the reserve league back then was very competitive because there were first team players coming back from injury or they were in, or hadn't played on Saturday. So they were subs. So, you know, I remember playing against, you know, some top first-team players, even at 16 and 17, in the reserve leagues. Um, so then when I had that transition into the first team, at I think it was 17 or 18 I was, um, with Hereford, my debut was on a cold Tuesday night in Scarborough. You know, seasoned pros don't like going to Scarborough on a cold Tuesday night. You know, so I coped, I managed... But there was a lot of things that actually helped me get to that point, you know, 
Some people call it a bit of bullying. A lot of people call it character building, the old school character building. I got some really, really horror stories, I could say. Don't think we could really hear them, to be honest. <laughs> um, but it was fight or flight back then. And all it was was senior players challenging you to see whether or not with two minutes to go, if you one nil up, could you cope under stress? You know, could you be challenged? Because, you know, the old Alamo would come, they'd be, get your tin hat on, they're smashing the ball into the 18-yard box for the last five minutes. You know, you might come off with a bit of claret hanging out your nose, you know, your nose pointing in the opposite way, but you've won one nil because you had the character to do it. So, yeah, I suppose we had that integration into senior football in a very different way to the modern game. Player development now has been extended, and rightly so. Um, I know, like you've said, touched on, players are earning big money and they've still not perhaps played a first-team game. But you know what? That's how the game is. That's the model of it now. So we can't change it. But I would say players are more rounded, very much so, compared to what we were <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Um, I noticed as well, during your time at Hereford, you played at the back with Dean Smith, Aston Villa manager. Yeah, unbelievable. What do you like as a player? No, you can see why he's a top manager. Really? Because he was a good, I'd call him, he was a general. You know, people call about leaders, but he was a general. He he created leaders around him as well. Um, great guy. Um, talented footballer. And yeah, what he's achieved is exactly what he was like as a player on the pitch, you know really demanding of himself and those around him. And and I'm really pleased. We still speak now. You know, um, I was only up at the club, you know, just before lockdown last year. And, you know, we were good friends back then. And you may not see each other for many, many years, but you, as long as you invest in people the right way, you know, those brilliant basics in life that don't cost a penny, you know, people like Dean Smith will always, they'll, they'll never forget you, you know. And I'm so pleased for him how well they've done this year. Yeah, yeah. Now they're they're doing superbly, aren't they? And even from his time at Brentford coming up and through Villa, he's done some brilliant work, man. And to be honest, I think he's going to be a future England manager as well. Um, wouldn't surprise me at all. No, I wouldn't be surprised. He's um, how he conducts himself, how he presents, you know, and that's improved over the seasons. If you look at his journey, he's evolved as a manager. You know, every day's a learning day, as cliche that as that sounds, you know. But I think, you know, from where things was a struggle last year for them, what he's gone away, he's adapted, he's challenged himself, he's challenging the players, he's challenging the club, he's, you know, clearly the board, other people, you know, you get success from, from the work you put in. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. I was always quite interested with that when I see you played with him because you get a lot of players speak about, current managers or players that they played with that went on to management. And sometimes they're like, I, I never saw that happening. It surprised me he went into it. So I was always quite, I'm always quite intrigued when look, like people have played with managers to see if that was always sort of in their locker, you could see it coming. So yeah. yeah I, don't, I don't know how much older he is. He's not that many years older than me, I don't think. But, but even then, it, back then, those few years of experience in senior football didn't half help drag the young players along. So if you were 22, 23 and you'd already got 100 games under your belt, you know, by the age of 20, I had 100 games under my belt. 
you know, maybe that led to why I had some injury problems after that. But, you know, the likes of him. And then we also signed a player called Kevin Smith um, from Coventry and they brought him in on loan to teach me some old school traits, game management, you know, how to pinch the player, you know, just to wind him up, put him off their stride uh, on corners, tread on somebody's toe, on somebody's toe and walk away, how to protect yourself. Cause you knew the old Spanish archer was coming out the corner, <laughs> you know, and he was bought in. And I remember about 18, 19 years of age, we played against uh, the crazy gang in the Coca-Cola cup. We played two legs. God, and, You know, you've got, well, you've got, don't even need to name names, but you know, I'm 18, 19, playing against John Fashionu. Oh, mate. Right? He's unbelievable. You know? <laughs> so I remember um, Warren Barton's playing at right back. I don't know why, but um, oh, what was the goalkeeper called? Um, Besson. Besson. No, the one after him. Hans Sagers. Hans Sagers. Hans Sagers. Oh, yeah. You know, Hans Sagers didn't throw the ball out. He used to just boom it, but he's thrown the ball out to uh, Warren Barton and he's clipped the ball down the line. So I'm running over top. Our manager then was Greg Downs, who'd played in the Coventry Cup winners team. And Greg's legs are gone. So I'm having to do all the running down his side and my own job. I'm running down the touchline with John Fashion. And as we're we're running flat out, and as we're running, he drops the nut on me as we're running. Yeah, don't surprise me. Right, And I slide in put the ball out for a throw in and he's hovering over top of me. You know, he's, what is he? Six foot four, six, five, whatever he is. Don't show no pain to me, wee man. I'm thinking, what is going on? Yeah. <laughs> but you couldn't shrink. Yeah. He, he seems so nice on the gladiators. You know, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then Hans Sagers, right, would have a goal kick and he sh- he's got his arms out. Hans, kick the ball to the fash. I am a warrior and a leader of our of our team. Awuga. Remember the show? And yeah. he'd stand there. Awuga, he'd shout. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I've never come across anything like this. But it, all it was was game management. Yeah. Putting you off. Trying to get in your head. Yeah. You up a little, yeah. yeah, but you know, and Vinny was playing, Dean Oldsworth, you know, they were. It was what an experience, you know, to play against, you know, players like that. Yeah, that was a team of characters. Um, go, go on, Matty. Just wanted to ask you, Gareth, have you seen the documentary that was on BT Sport about the Crazy Gang? Yeah. One of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Brilliant. Fashnu, absolute animal. Just well, I nearly signed for them from Hereford. Oh, really? Tell you what happened. Um, I We were meant to play Oldham away, and they'd been watching me because I'd had a few clubs in my early stages at Hereford, you know, things could have been very different. I went to, I'll come back to this other point, but um, went to Oldham. Didn't, uh, sorry, Hereford played Oldham. I wasn't playing, I was suspended, which I quite regularly was back then. Um, <laughs> and, and I missed the chance and they signed somebody else um, on the back of that. So I could have ended up going there. Um, wow. But yeah, I, I, at that time, you know what? It was put me off my stride a little bit because I had quite a few clubs interested. I even went to Liverpool for three weeks on trial. So I was playing for Hereford on match days. We were playing, as it happens, only playing Saturday to Saturday for three weeks. Um, and 
they couldn't they couldn't agree a financial deal on to, for me to go to Liverpool at eighteen. I think oh. I'd only played about twenty games. I think, um, but I was very close to signing for Liverpool, and you know things could have been very different. But I remember going to Liverpool, and you know, if you think about it too much, it could mess your head up. You know, we'll come to that when you know later on when we talk about me having to retire from the game. But I was sat in the changing room, you know, with McManaman, Redknapp, you know, your Fowlers. He was, you know, a young lad. And Spice Boys. Oh, they were unbelievable. And I'm sat there. It's shrinking violet in the corner, you know, from a very rural farming community in Midwells. And what they're doing in the changing rooms, pinging balls and knocking you know, water bottles, the old big Lucozade bottles off and they've got all these tricks and they're doing everything. And they're like, Ginge, come on, you have a go. I'm like, no, I can edit further than I can kick it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, but it was unbelievable, you know, great learning curve for me. It never came off. It could mess with your head, but you know what? It happened. Get on with it. But nobody can ever take it away from me that I, uh, I've had that experience. That's it, yeah. Go on, Greg. No, well, it's just about that, really. Like, so, how did you did you not go back to the club and say, "Listen, just get this done"? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a move that you, as you say, yes, it could mess you up. If you think about it too much, but like at the time, you're maybe signing for one of the like the biggest teams in England. Yeah, well, at the time though, I, the club told me they thought I wasn't good enough. And actually, it wasn't until my dad saw Ian Bowyer about three, four months later that he said the deal was just financially. Oh. And there was a breakdown somewhere. So you didn't know that initially? I didn't know it initially. I just oh. thought I was told I wasn't good enough. Give, like, give him a call in now, Gareth. Hey, hey, give, hey, give Jürgen a call now. You're all right. To be fair, most people who came across me didn't think I was good enough anyway. So, <laughs> um, Well, we signed the Davies. I mean, you could... Just, just play under the same name. <laughs> yeah. but I'll be honest, because I thought I wasn't good enough, I went through a little spell where I struggled. And I always remember speaking to Greg Downs, who became the manager after a player at Hereford, and he said, there were times I needed to drop you so you could go and find yourself. Um, you needed a breather, but the squad wasn't big enough, and I had to keep playing. And eventually I had to just play my way back into a certain level of confidence and bring myself back and re-engage in a different way. But I had to do that myself. And that's the difference between football then to football now. There is a different way of managing players now. There's more support mechanism to help the individual, whether you're 18 or 28, you know, and there's even support for the coaches, you know, because the environment, the demands, still for three points, but it's a different way now because the exposure through social media, you know, camera footage, et cetera, you know, the, the game is different, you know, it's still a round ball, but, you know, they should be really thankful that there's a lot more engagement and support for them because I never had it and, and it was challenging. Yeah, I'll bet. And then obviously you, you, your moves there didn't come off, but you ended up getting snapped up by Crystal Palace from Hereford for yeah. 120 grand. What was yeah, that like, it was, mate? Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a few, it a few clubs I could have gone to, and I don't know why I chose Palace. I really don't. Looking back, I still can't remember why. Um, 
but went down with my dad, met Ron Nodes and Steve Koppel. And there was a lot of good clubs interested at the time, but Steve Koppel was a top, top man. You know, what a manager, um, real forward thinker. From what I understand, I think he had a law degree, so highly intelligent, um, really invested in his players. Um, I was a big fan then, and I'll always be a big fan of him because what he's done for Palace as a club, what he did for Reading, you know, he's, you know, undoubtedly highly skilled as a manager, but he was most probably more skilled as as person to person. Man management. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, they, top, they, top they, they brought him back in, didn't they, after they got rid of him originally, Palace? They, I can't remember. Well, were, I tell you what was one of the funniest one. stories I always remember. He left Palace because Man City came in for him. All right. right. And he was there something for like 42 days or something like that. <laughs> I don't think his heart was really, he didn't really want to leave London, you know, because he loved his life back there. But managers have been seen to do that, haven't they? They... The grass isn't greener. Sometimes it's just a different colour. Um, and I remember he had such a great relationship with Ron Nodes. You know, God bless him. Um, what a great man he was. A lot of people didn't like Ron Nodes, but I was a big fan. Nice guy. Great chairman. And he left City and literally walked straight back into Palace as a god. And the Palace players had created cardboard gravestones with rest in, rest in peace, Coppel and all this, Man City, rest in peace. The, the banter was just unbelievable, you know. But he loved it. And, it, you know, he was integrated back into the club. He came back in as director of football with uh, Ray Lewington and Peter Nicholas, who were there at the time. And he slowly then got back involved and took over again, you know. After, uh, it, it was all around with uh, Dave Bassett involved there. But... Yeah, great band, you know, but I, I wouldn't have done that. I was still quite new in the club, you know, but you've seen like the, the lads with their banter with these Man City gravestones, rest in peace, Steve Koppel and all, <laughs> and the dates and how many days he was there. Um, <laughs> but that was, you know, light-hearted humour that actually, do you know what? It was what the players actually thought of him. Yeah. You know, they really yeah. loved him and trusted him and respected him. Um, you know, and you, you do see that still today. You know, that wasn't really changed in clubs. Because, you know, yes, we're footballers, managers, whatever, but we're still people. Yeah. Was he funny, Steve Popper? Yeah, he had this... uh, Yeah, he was quite dry at times, but very quick-witted, you know. Tiny little character, but he had this certain edge about him. Um, Yeah, I I liked him a lot. He was. He was. I thought he might be quite strict, sort of thing. Is it, or or is he? Does he? Does he? Does he know when to? Is he like that? Can he just, you know, strict when he needs to, but can have a laugh? Or, well, like I said, you know, you talk about the All Blacks about building cultures and things like that. Do you know what? Without being overly strict, he 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 managed his group of people, not just the players. He had the respect of everyone because he treated everyone with respect. Everybody was equal. You know, I remember the, there was the, the cook and her daughter worked in the training ground kitchen and it was quite an old school sort of training ground in an old wooden hut. And you know what? I've always been one of these. You don't need any everything all singing and dancing. As long as it's clean, it's tidy, it's respected and it's warm, 
for example, that, do you know what? Everybody was on a par and, you know, whether it was before my time, the Ian Wrights would have engaged with Beth and her daughter years ago. You know, they'd have respected her because her food was as important as the balls being pumped up right, you know, by the kick man. And that's what Steve Koppel created. And that's what good man managers do now, you know, make everybody feel part of a team because it's not just about the team. Yes, the team on a Saturday at three o'clock or four o'clock on a Sunday, whenever it may be, have to go and perform to make the team the club successful, to make money. But there's always the team behind the team that are as important to get them there. Yeah. Well, they're the backbone of the club, aren't they? Them sort of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I was looking at like the list of some of the, the players in, in that Palace team at that time. There was some like ridiculous talented players in there. You like Sir Nigel Martin, Tony Gale, David Opkin, Ray Houghton. It was just like pretty much a who's who in, in that Palace side at the time. We, we had um, Gareth Graham on uh, a few weeks back who you played with at Palace um, and we reeled off a few at, at the time then when we went through the team. Who, who were the sort of like the ones that really stood out to you and made you sort of stand up and go, wow, these are, these are a bit good? Yeah, well, um, Lombardo came there. Oh, cool, uh, yeah. Like Padovano didn't have a great spell there when he came as well at the same time, you know. But, you know, he, he was one of the top scorers in Syria at well, the time. I, I actually met, I spoke to Matty earlier about, about um, Padovano because the name, I was looking through the, through the squad list and the name sort of stood out and I was like, rings a bell and I, and I looked into him and he was at Juve, wasn't he, before yeah. and he had an injury and then Palace got hold of him. But he, he scored something like 28 goals in 41 games for Juventus yeah. just before he went to Palace. That's and then couldn't it, couldn't it a barn door at Palace? Really? <laughs> you saw him in training. It's just one of those things. It didn't click in games. You see him in trainings, training and he was just a world... He, I was just... I was like, ah, this is unbelievable. <laughs> you know, and I can't go smashing my teammates, can I, like in training? But <laughs> although we, we, it was a bit heavy at times back then in the, in the day when we played five sides were quite hectic to be honest it was hard for people managers to manage players like you'd have it was always you'd always play a five aside on a Friday and everybody wanted to win and to rein that in that take took a real good manager to stop players from you know hurting your teammates before before the big game but yeah to answer your question you know Nigel Martin in goal um, phenomenal he, unbelievable phenomenal goalkeeper um, you know, your Richard Shaws, um, Chris Coleman, Dean Gordon, uh, Mark Edworthy played at right back. He was, Eddie was class, so consistent with his performances. Your Ray Houghtons, your Hoppies, you know. Um, brilliant. Clint- Lovely smile, David Hopkin and all, didn't he? Oh, brilliant. Um, <laughs> Clinton, Clinton Morrison, Dougie Friedman, you know, you, you know, your Andy Linnigans, your David Tuttles. Tuts, I know... I. Picked up, you know, what Gareth Graham said. Tuts, honestly, unbelievable, that guy. And I haven't seen him since I left Palace, you know, 20-odd years, whatever. And it's like, I'd love to see that guy because, boy, was he dry. Have you got any Tuts stories? Because Gareth's one was a good talker. You know what? Because of my job now, I've got to be very careful what I say. <laughs> it's, I, you know what? I've got some phenomenal tales, but some of them you just... Tell us after. Yeah, yeah. When we stop recording, we'll have to. Oh, <laughs> Tats, right? He must be the richest man around because, you know, hardly ever spent any money. He, no. 
his, his dress sense, do you know what? He bought the cheapest clothes from the cheapest shop. And do you know what? What's wrong with that? But he yeah. did Tats didn't care. You know, he was the sort of guy. He'd also do it as well for reaction at times, Tats. He knew how to play the game, you know, but we'd be in one of the local, you know, be going out after a game, go to the local nightclub, and Tuts has got his white socks on. And he'd have bought trousers that you know, were closer to his knees and his ankles. And he'd have done it for, you know, just for the banter as well. But you'd have seen him. He'd have worn the same clothes to training for three, four days in a row. Tuts, he just didn't care. But, yeah, it was some great characters. Um, and it was hard to get in the team. And if I'm honest, when I look back, did I believe in myself enough? Steve Koppel actually told me, come on, believe in yourself more. You know, you've got the ability, you've got the talent, you know, you've got a great, great character in you. I suppose just coming from such a rural area where I was, I hadn't had that exposure enough, I suppose, as a youngster, just to be stretched and challenged. Um and maybe uh, that sort of linked into why my injury problems came because instead of perhaps leaning on the technical tactical, it was always my physical game that was getting me over the line and, and I'd run through a brick wall, you know, but, but then my teammates always said they loved that because they didn't have to do it. I was done d doing all the, the donkey work to say for them. Yeah. And how you feel. That's what they do to me. Yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, I can see you've got the good looks like me too. Yeah. <laughs> we are good looking. You've got much better hair though, Gareth. Yeah. yeah. Oh. You don't want to see me in a bird's eye view, I'm telling you. Look, look at that. Did you used, to, lucky. you used to model socks and gloves for Little Woods? <laughs> <laughs> and twin. I promoted the wristwatches. Oh God, you done him. <laughs> well, I've got to go. Dinner's ready, guys. See you later. <laughs> he's so pleased he's come on now, isn't he? Um, go on, Greg. Did you have something on the back? Yeah, of I just wanted to. T um, so when you signed for Palace, how old was you? I was twenty-one. You was twenty-one. So do you had you the um, the eight caps that you had for the under twenty-ones? Did you sort of had them by then? Which, were they all at Hereford? Yeah, they were. So um, in my team then. Um, Robbie yeah. Savage, John Artson, um, yeah. that sort of era. Uh, Nathan Blake. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think who else was. I don't know, yeah, because I say I've done a bit of digging, Gareth, on on some of the games that you played, and they were were they they were all qualifiers, from what I from yeah what they I read. were yeah. And um, I was there's also another player that I wanted to ask you about because he was a he was a Liverpool player, and I saw Lee Jones. Yeah. He was, I mean, I'll read you out his his goals in the qualifying. I think he had, he had um, I think he had like six goals or something. And he, he actually was ahead of players like Del Vecchio, Shevchenko, Vieri and Inzaghi in that qualifying round. And he, he only played like four games for Liverpool in it. And I, I read that he had like two broken legs. And just wanted to sort of, was he that good as a player? Like... Because he, he looked like he had the world at his feet. If he's outscoring them sort of players, and then obviously them two them two broken legs would have obviously like hampered his. He was held in such high regard. He was most probably the player in a few years before uh, Fowler and Owen. But yeah. he Lee Jones was outstanding. He he was so hard to play against. Um, he'd play on the on the shoulder of the centre back, 
always looking to run in behind. A bit like Vardy now, exactly that type of player. But again, injuries, you know, wrong thing at the wrong time, your journey isn't the same as what it could have been. Um, great lad. Um, still speak to him now. Real nice guy. Um, yeah, but who knows what would have happened for him because... He, he, he knew where the net was. He was an unbelievable talent. But around that time, um, I can't remember who exactly, but it was around um, Karol Poborski, that sort of era. Played for, we played against uh, Czechoslovakia. Yeah, I was, I, um, I, that's what I'm saying. I read all that. You know, some of those players. Um, what was the lad who played for Man City from George, the little Georgian King international? Kladzi. Oh, Georgie King Kladzi. King Kladzi, I... I I don't have a, if you don't know this chap's name, right? But there's a there's a coach called Joey Jones, who's a legend, played for Liverpool, right? Won the European Cup, made a, a lot of his name at Liverpool and Wrexham. And Joey Jones was the assistant coach, assistant manager to Brian Flynn of the under 21s. So we were playing against Georgia, and Kinkladzi went and played for the first team the following day as well. But even though I was a centre back, I was quite a good athlete. And they came up, like man marking was quite um, a trend back then. You'd go man for man, and that was your job. If, even if you were in, if we were in possession of the ball, you didn't even try and get on it. All your job was, when the other team had it, you looked after the danger man. And I did that a lot at Hereford as well. Anyway, Joey Jones and Brian Flynn called me in and said, right, you're playing in midfield. I went, I've never played there. He said, don't worry, you're not there to play. You're there to sort King Gladzi out. <laughs> So we play against uh, Georgia. The game's going on 10 minutes, 15, 20. And all I can hear is this voice going, are you going to sort him out or what? I'm giving you one fucking job. Take that fucking little shit. <laughs> and he's going, Joey, fucking nail him. It got to about 42 minutes and I've put King Cladsey into Rose Dead. I've absolutely <laughs> nailed him. The little bugger played the following day, so I couldn't have hurt him that much. And we're going down the tunnel and Joey Jones grabs me by the scruff of the neck and he said, boy, you're lucky. He said, because if you hadn't nailed him then, I'd have absolutely killed you in that change room in front of your team. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you had just one job. You're an athlete and all this. And he's, uh, But it was just brilliant, you know. But nobody knew who King Cladsey was at the time. But what he went on to do, do you know what? Yeah. I couldn't get... I, I, and I was. I was a good athlete, you know. But... I couldn't get anywhere near him. He was absolutely phenomenal. All I had to take was half a split second to look that way, and he'd already gone 10 yards that way to find a pocket of space. Unbelievable talent. But, yeah, that era, some unbelievable players. I think Czechoslovakia, Patrick Berger, I think, was on the... Nedved on, been in that and all? Nedved, yeah, yeah Nedved. Nedved, Nedved was on it. I found the oh. programme at my mum and dad's um, about 12 months ago. Um, and I was looking back and I was thinking, wow, Unbelievable. But we were close to qualifying as well, I think. They had a phenomenal generation of players then, didn't they? Yeah. Yes. Outstanding. Back you, on King Clark. Um, oh, go on, mate. Yeah. Sorry, mate. I was just in that in that round of qualifying, you, you didn't play in the Germany game, but did you go? Did you watch? Was you in the I didn't go out. I I played in the home game, I think. I didn't play away. Okay. Not sure why. Um, chances are another suspension. Um, <laughs> But, Just the names in that team as well that I, that I sort of come across. Lars Ricken and Dietmar Hummer. Yeah. Like, some of the players that, that yeah, it's just unreal, really. Like, and you think they're, 
that was quite, you know, the careers they went on to go and have, then they wouldn't have even probably been spoke about, sort of, they, you know. Yeah. But just, were they were they that good then? Did you sort of, them you know, sort of players, like your, your Popolskis and your yeah. Ned Vens and them? Yeah, and it wasn't, you know, like you see some international games now, you know, even under 21s level, you know, where teams are dropping off into very mid to low blocks and, you know, there isn't much of a tempo. Oh, they were high tempo games. It was, it was, every player actually in the under 21s back then were all playing first team football at, you know, whatever level. Now, different for Wales because we didn't have the numbers of pull. You know, I was playing in the fourth tier, but, you know, it was, I, I was lucky enough to move on, you know, to championship level as such. But yeah, to, we had some top players, like I said, Sav, Robbie Savage, John Artsons, you know, your Lee Joneses, your Nathan Blakes. Um, yeah, some top, top people, you know. And well, one of my colleagues now, Gareth Owen, you know, talented, very talented midfield player was at Wrexham, you know, was there for many years. And yeah, some top players. I was lucky, very lucky to be around some good people back then. Did I see the manager as well? That, um, well, the manager that's been put in now, because of obviously what's happening with Brian Giggs, is Rob Page. Was he in your team as well? Yeah, Pagey was. Yeah, of course, I'll, I'll get done for this when I'm not mentioning Pagey. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, again, you talk about Dean Smith um, and, you know, you look at people like Pagey when I played alongside him. Um, and I'm not saying this now because I forgot to mention him. Um, <laughs> but, but like Pagey, unbelievable leader, you know. The leaders and there's generals, you know, the people that can go to that next level. And you you aren't a good manager, good coach, good person if you can't step in like Pagey recently did, did sorry, with the, you know, with the national team uh, recently. Yeah. Um, you know, and, he, you know, it's, you know, he's taking over over the next few games. He's, um, you know, top guy and he's in this, you know, the same mould as your Dean Smiths. Um, and if you look, if you look at a lot of managers, uh, head coaches, managers who get to the highest level, predominantly a lot of them are defensive midfielders or defensive players. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because you see so much of the game in front of you and you have to manage so much in front of you and around you at all times you are that leader come general and that's what a, you know, what a head coach or manager is. Yeah. yeah. No, 100%, mate. And then during your time at Palace as well, when they got up into the Premier League, you had, uh, you made your Premier League debut coming on as a sub against Leicester, which Sam yeah. was actually in that Leicester team as well. It was, yeah. Um, yeah. My one and only game. Um, yeah, most probably after about 18 months, I, st- I, I remember having two double groin operations. Still got the scars now. Um, was it for the way I played? Was my body starting to shut down without realizing it? Um, and I just, and an opportunity, I wasn't getting many games because, you know, it is the highest level. Was it me? I didn't believe in myself enough. Was it my injuries? I can't really recall it too much. But, you know, I had the opportunity then. I, I was in and always in and around the squad, so which was a great experience. So nobody can ever take that away from me. And I also remember touching on that Scarborough game. I remember playing that my first ever professional game. And I remember saying to my dad after, if, I, if that's my only one and ever game, nobody can ever take it away from me. And I said the same after I made that one appearance. You played in my, the Premier League. I played in the Premier League. I've got my Premier League shirt, you know, millions of you know, million, thousands and thousands of boys will always ever, always have that dream. Um, and I, to be honest, 
that was the the icing on the cake, really. But when I look back, it was the most probably the Scarborough game that was far more important than me, just to get on that first rung of the ladder. Yeah, no, a hundred percent, mate. That was um, that's. I looked at that Leicester team as well. I got the lineup um, up earlier, and that was that Leicester team. I think they they won the league cup. May have been that year. Like that. Yeah, I think it was that year. But it was like with with your Casey Kellers, Muzzy, is it Spencer Pryor, Matt Elliott, Sav, all of, like them sort of players. They had some some Emil team. Emil like, must have been there then as well. Who's that? Emil Heskey. Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah, and they had Steve Claridge as well up there with yeah. and Graham yeah. Fenton. Do you remember him? Mr. Oh yeah, Graham Fenton. Yeah, yeah. He was Northern yeah. Irish, wasn't he? Was he not? Was he Irish? Yeah, I can't I remember he, actually. Northern yeah. Irish. But then you look back at that, those that era, some of the the Premier League teams. You know, I know there's massive names now, but it's nice to look back and you think being in and around there. But even the Championship back then, you know, was some unbelievable names. Yeah. You know, playing in and around the Championship. You know, it was. It was a tough, le- the, you know, it is now. People say how tough the championship is. The amount of games that you have to play, the demands on you. It's um, what a great level of football to play. You know, oh, I bet, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and I tell you what's great as well. Um, like you could have banter as well with the fans. You know, you know, you. I used to love the abuse by the opposition <laughs> fans because it was always my job you know, you were always allowed and you, you you could lend one tackle in the first five minutes. Sorry, ref, I'm I'm warmed up yet. <laughs> you know, and it was always my job That's to get fun. the first, first header in or, you know, get the first tackle in. And if I used to, I used to love it if it was right on the touchline in front of the home fans, you know, or, <laughs> you know, or in front of the corner flag right in, you know, I remember one of my first ever games for Palace was against Sunderland at the old Roker Park. And I remember Ray Houghton saying to me, he said, I'll give you one bit of advice. He said, if you soften up someone today and you do it in front of the, uh, the Roker Roar, he said, your hairs will stand up on the back of your neck. And he was right. I've cleaned somebody out, taken the ball, and I've cleaned somebody out. And next thing, I got up and all you heard was this, come over top of you, over the, the old metal rate fence in. Ah, it was like you have that it was little fashion. Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> ah, the, the, the banter with the fans back then years ago. It's very different now. Um, but yeah, superb. I bet that was a class feeling. That yeah, playing against. I remember playing for Reading um, against Man City um, and Paul Dickoff and Juve um, Rosler, wasn't it? Yeah, they they were up front together, and I, I played one of my best games for Red in that night, midweek game, and I'm just I'm just cleaning everything up. I'm cleaning them up, and I'm doing all sorts on the pitch. Like you know, I've I just leading everything. It was just one of those games that everything went right, and they're absolutely hammering me. I'm a ginger this. I'm a ginger that. <laughs> and all sorts. I'm. I'm pulling Moonies, I'm flashing them. Well, if you did that on the pitch now, you, you're all sorts of trouble, aren't you? Oh, big time. But you know what? At the end of the game, you know, I th- I can't remember the score. But the first thing that those Man City fans are doing, you go towards them and they applaud you. Yeah. Because there's been that, buy- that two-way buy-in. And I don't think you see that as much now. You know, the terraces to the player and that engagement, you know, as long as you didn't cross the line as a player, they didn't cross the line as fans. 
do you know what? There was a mutual respect. And yeah. it, it was a pleasure to play in that area of football. I bet, yeah. Was, coming back on that, that City team, was King Clady in that team? I think he might have been, yeah. yeah. You know, that was around the time when Middlesbrough were phenomenal as well. Yeah, Juninho and Emerson. Juninho, and Ravinelli. Ravinelli. Person was playing there. Oh, yeah. You know, they oh, were... Hazard as well was in there, wasn't he? Yeah. You know, it was unbelievable. You know, some of those championship teams, it was... That's you know, ridiculous, them sort of players. <laughs> um, Wrighty you know, was coming to the end of his days at, and, and, and he went from West Ham to Forest. Yeah. Like, he was tough to play against Wrighty. Oh, I bet. Even coming to the end, his half yards were phenomenal. You know, and he, he knew every trick in the book. You know, you, you didn't come off that pitch without a mark on you in some form, like, you know, but... Because he had come was, through not like amateur football as well, hadn't he? He got quite late on, so he, he would have known all the sort of dirty tricks as well, right? Yeah. You know, hey, and let's not forget, there's players now, even at the highest level, they know when to produce some of those little dirty tricks. It still goes yeah. on, you know, but you've got to box smart because, you know, that lens is on top of you all the time. <laughs> you know, it was very different back then, but... You know, you know, we touched on it before, but when I was at Hereford, played against a, a chap called Billy Whitehurst, recognised most probably as the hardest man to have ever played football. I know you like sort of Terry Erlock and all them would argue that ex Millwall, etc. But remember, Derek Hall, the cap- captain at Hereford, said to me, "Whatever you do," he said, "Don't try and kick him. Just play safe." And kickoff's gone. He's grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, and Billy Whitehurst has gone. If you take the ball off me today, I'll break every bone in your body. Right? He knew I was a young lad, done his own work. I thought, what do I do? This could go one way or the other. I either bottle it, I just as well go off the pitch. I'll do my job, just keep it clean and tidy. And he came, uh, to, I think he got substituted and he, he came up to me, and shook my hand, and went, Well done. He said, Fair play to you for sticking to the task, like, you know. And, but, you know, Billy Whitehurst, he used to be a bouncer as well in nightclubs after games. You know, and it was, you know, a lot of heavy stories about Billy Whitehurst, but yeah, learning curve playing against people like that. Oh, 100%. It's like you said, we, we said earlier, it's fight or flight. And when, when you're coming face to face with someone like that who knows he's there to try and intimidate you and break your game, just yeah. mentally, really. And like, because the cameras weren't there as much, uh, a lot of games were filmed, but it wasn't, it wasn't that live impact and... Mm-hmm. You know, we could all talk about VAR. But I remember playing one game for Palace against Luton. And um, this lad, his name was basically, it, it sounded like Darth Vader, right? <laughs> but in the newspaper on the, uh, the following day, it called him something like Daft Vidar. Because basically, right from the word go, he was trying to, well, he was, every time there was a goal kick or ball was in the air, he was trying to smash me. And I'd warn, I said to him, look, you had to protect, it was me or him, right? And I had to protect myself in some way because either I was going to end up in hospital or I had to stop him from playing. <laughs> so he'd done it enough and I said to him, right, no more. I said, look, I've given you your chance. And then he's come across and I just looked at him, he scraped my nose and I didn't say nothing. I left it and I thought, right, I've got to bide my time here because I'm going to be on the treatment table if, if I don't look after myself. So I waited for a goal kick I've looked at the linesman, 
looked at the linesman, looked at the ref, and he's on my left-hand side. I've come up with an uppercut. I've hit him under the jaw, and I've walked away. Nobody <laughs> knew who it was. Well, and, at, and at Luton back then, and I wasn't proud of doing it. Don't get me wrong. Not proud. Like but, but it was... It, could, it was going to be me from one of his elbows. The next challenge, I could have been knocked out and ne perhaps never played football again. So I did all I, I, I And it wasn't my aim to do him damage. It was just to soften him and go, look, you know, it was the only subtle way I could find. But that's what happened back then in the game. You know, you, you couldn't do it now. There are ways that players go around it, you know, to do it. But the, the treatment table at Luton, uh, the first aid room was right next to the... Um, and he, and he wasn't that hurt. He, he had to go off. He didn't come back on. But it, we were walking back in towards the, um, the change room. The lad's going, who just did that to him? And I won't say nothing until we got in the change room. And I walked into the treatment room for, for the Luton treatment room, tapped him on the ankle and went, you win some, you lose some, son. <laughs> Got to be a bit smarter like that. And, and, he's, and he's still coming around with the old smelling salt sort of thing, like, you know. But, you know, but that's what happened. But... And on the following day, that was it with the new newspapers. It went, Daft Vida comes off after clash, you know, in game or something. And nobody knew because they were looking to send somebody off, but they nobody knew. So you had, you had to play clever because it was either me or him who was going to end up injured. And it, that was the only thing I didn't like about football. They talked about hard men back then. Being a hard man, what, what characteristics did you want? Well, it was being strong in the tackle, being strong in the air, but do it fairly. You know, I was a tough player, but I'd never go out. Never once did I ever think about breaking anybody's legs. Never once did I go out to try and elbow somebody in the head. Um, yeah. I, my respect that way, I'd never cross that line because I certainly didn't like the attitude of what was so-called hard men weren't hard men because they do you cheaply from the side. Yeah, it's, it's dirty, isn't it? It's snidey. Yeah. Yeah, real hard men. I, I could talk you through the real hard men in football. And they were people that they would, they'd love a 50-50 with you. Just be you know. competitive sort of thing. Just that, that's, that's it. Just, yeah. Just fair. Yeah, 100%. Even at the like Sunday league level, boys, where, where, where we play and whatever, it's, it's this, the self-same thing with that. Like you, you get your snidey people that do you from behind when you're not looking and things like that. That that ain't hard because then they're hiding behind the referee and they're hiding behind everyone else who jumps in. That's not they're not the hard people, are they? Let's be fair. No. And if you listen to you know Mourinho, you know you you, you listen to his uh, documentary, you know the Amazon mm. documentary. You know, yeah, I'm not going to repeat his language, but you have got to be yeah. so mentally strong. See you, have, you know, you've got to manage yourself because it yes. is still happening in the game. And like I said, you know, when we went away with the Wales under-17s and we played Bosnia, they were like men and they had such a tough upbringing. And, hey, I did not teach the players how to do anything that was against the laws of the game. But what I did teach them, you know what? You've got you've to play smart. You've got to know how to protect yourself, shield the ball in a different way, open your body up in a different way to be able to defend. Because they had a centre-back he could head the ball so far under 17s and he, he could head it further than a lot of the players on the pitch could kick it. And he was their leader. He was, he was one of the generals, but he was like an old school centre back. And we were like, and my assistant, Rich, uh, sorry, my head coach, Richie said, Gaz, we've got to stop that. And I said, right, let me have a little think because 
you know, the modern game, the referees, you know, the assistants, you, can, you can't go about the old way. And I wasn't going to educate these young players to play dirty. Just, just box smart, you know, like a modern... The, a mo, you've got to be a modern player, but how's your game management going to, you know, look after that, you know? So that was a good education for the players going somewhere like Bosnia because they were old school. Yeah, that, that's exactly it, mate. Um, and then, obviously, following your move, you said to Reading, um, was it Alan Pardew was your manager there? No, Terry Bullivan. Oh, Terry um, Bullivan. Yeah, um, one of the the old school who travelled around a lot of the London clubs. So he signed me, but it wasn't long. He bought he bought a few of us in. Um, he bought myself in, a lad called Jason Bowen, Andy Legg. Um, oh, Andy Legg. The, yeah, the long throw specialist. You know, brilliant having Leggy in the team. Leggy be playing left back and then you, you bring him over to right back. If you're under the cosh for five minutes, just go and stand. You know, you've got a you've got to throw in by your own corner flag. Leggy, come over here, son, get us out of trouble. And he boom <laughs> it, and we're up at their corner flag. <laughs> you know, but Hoppy was the same at Palace. Unbelievable missile. And you've seen it more. I think this team's now utilizing it again now at the highest level. You know, because it's a set piece. It's, it's got throw-on coaches now. Yeah, well, Liverpool yeah. got that geezer, that German fellow. Yeah, we got, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a set piece. So yeah, Terry Bullivant come in, and then it wasn't long then before um, Tommy Burns come in, ex Celtic manager, oh, Celtic guy, yeah. And he he wanted to bring in his own players, and I was devastated um, because I really I was playing my best football. I'd sort of repaired myself in some ways, I think, and body was it was coping. Was this after came, following the groin injuries, yeah? Yeah, and, yeah. and I was playing some... I, I was close to getting in the, the national team and getting full caps with the Welsh squad because I was chasing, you know, your Kit Simons, your Chris Coleman's, Eric Young's, etc. Pagey was in there, you know. So I was up against some top players to try and, mm. you know, knock off their perch. But I was playing really, really well. Um, and then Tommy Burns come in and wanted to bring change the, flip the whole squad. Um, and that happened... But I was a bit devastated, to be honest. Um, when he told me that I could move, I didn't. The right moves weren't coming along for me at the time. Um, but I turned down a move to Brentford. I remember it on a Tuesday, and I'd sort of played my way back into his plans a little bit. And then he said, "Look, as you've turned it down, he said we need you off the wage bill. I want you out. I've bought too many players in, and you've got to go." So on the Saturday, I was in his team. On the Tuesday, I was due to play for his team. Brentford come in and I went and I had talks to him because Chris, Col- um, Chris Col- Ron Nodes and Ray Lewington and everyone and cops went to Brentford um, and took over there. So they wanted a few of the old Palace old guard back together. Um, that's where Gareth Graham yeah, kind of linked back there, up with he? him. Um, but that's football and that's life. So then that's, that was cut quite short before moving on to Swindon. And then I w- I'd only been at Swindon two months, three months, if that, and I did my ACL. Um, the, how the how did you do it, Gareth? Literally, I was, like, a, a striker was attacking me. He's gone down to my left, chopped back inside. I've gone to move. My studs have stayed in the ground, and I could hear it go. Oh. But the club doctors back then, and a lot of clubs, were orthopedic surgeons, jack-of-all-trades, master of, masters of none. <laughs> Thought I'd only done my uh, cartilage, 
and they were they were trying to say it was all in my head. So I was playing <laughs> through these injuries. I ended up having three operations in two years on my on my knee, and they, you know, by that time, I was a wreck, and my career was over. So I did my knee at twenty six. Hardly played then till I was twenty eight, and had to retire and walk away from the game. And that's when most probably, you know, it's a buzz at the moment is about mental health, health. And I had a tough time, you know, my career was taken away from me. Yeah. And, you know, through, it could have been repaired, but people thought it was, people thought it was all in my head that there was nothing wrong with my knee. So, so we, before I come to you, Matty, we, we sort of touched on this with, with Gareth Graham as well, with his injuries, with, He's such a victim, and so are you, of, of the era. Um, if that's nowadays, you, you're getting sent for scans straight away. You, you're getting looked at. They know exactly what's wrong. They know exactly how to rehab you correctly. Do you know what I mean? And and for all you know, you could have been back within a year or whatever and back playing and had a full career. It, it's it's such a shame, really, just because like guilty of the, the era that you were playing in, you know? Yeah. I, I, I remember the laugh... <laughs> The ongoing joke at Swindon was, I don't think the uh, the ultrasound machine had been serviced for about four or five years, so nobody knew if it even worked, you know. So, you know, a lot of the equipment back there, you know, clubs were struggling financially a little bit because it was just in that period where, you know, was it 92 that Sky started? Yeah, that's when the Premier League, you know, so Premier League, it, yeah. it was slowly starting to grow. And I would say, come into the late 90s, early 2000s, was when the the money was slowly starting to transition into you know players' wages were starting to start to bulge, and I missed that train, you know. <laughs> but Broken it. you know, but what I've taken out of football and the life I had, the experiences I had, some great great times. You know, football was very different, and the makeup of it is very different to now. You can't prepare for games like players prepared years ago. Um, you know, the rule was back then, you never drank on a Thursday or Friday night before games. But up until then, your social life, you know, we had some great times. I remember once, I was, I'd long landed in Palace and the boys put me on a National Express bus. I thought I was going back to, back to Croydon, you know, where we, a lot of us were living, South Croydon, you know, towards the M25. The old and, X26, was it? What's that? Is it the X26? I think the bus is called. I think it's called. Oh, but they stuck me on a different bus. I ended up in Portsmouth or Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. But, and then found my way back then, sort of early hours uh, in the morning. Oh, wow. You know, but, but that was the banter, you know. You know, they even gave, they even bought a return ticket. So at least they looked <laughs> after my welfare. <laughs> 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 Made sure you got back. This is a long journey to Croydon. <laughs> oh, brilliant. You know, it is. I tell you what, I, I've told this story many a time. This was when I was at Reading and we had our Christmas do and one of the lads was big friends with Peter Stringfellow. Oh, God. And we Christmas do's, you know, because they were well known when they for being real party nights, uh, you know, on uh, Crouchy's, you know, podcast recently, yeah. you know, talking about when they were banned from going one one, and Robbie Keane ended up taking them all to Dublin. That's right, yeah. You know, unbelievable. Anyway, so we've been out all day around Covent Garden and all that, and we end up in, in Stringfellows. So we haven't been in there long, and, I, and I'm quite a good drunk. I've got my wits about me. Um, 
and I, I know I can manage myself. So I said to the boys, oh, where's the toilets? Yes, because I knew something had been. Anyway, I start walking over. And as I'm walking out, you know, when you're walking down the street, you know, when somebody coming on a pavement, somebody comes towards you and you go, oh, sorry, mate. And you go that way. So this fella's coming towards me. And, you know, you've been careful in somewhere like Stringfellows is, you know, so high market and all that, you know, I'll talk, not, I'll talk about, you know, the reason why you're in there. But <laughs> so this fella, this fella come towards me and he goes, oh, sorry, mate. And he goes, so I went, oh, look, sorry. And then, and he's doing it, he, you know, it's like, and you do it a couple of times to each other. So I went, I stepped to one side and he, he does it again. And I'm like, oh, come on. I, I'm bursting for a pee, yeah. You're having a dance. I, I, and I, it is. You, you, you do, don't you? You're like having a little, <laughs> little doing the toss pot shuffle together. <laughs> so I thought, hold on a minute. Something's not right here. So I slowly leaned forward. No, it wasn't. I went, look, mate. Oh, look, stomach. And he's opposite me going, nah, 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 like playing back, pulling these. I said, look, just leave it alone. So I start to edge forward. And I realize I'm in front of a mirror. And I, oh, no. <laughs> I, wow. And I must have been there for like 30, 45 seconds on my own. <laughs> and I look behind me, and like most of the string fellows are watching me in front of this oh, mirror. No. <laughs> well, you said you were a good drunk. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> and that was most, perhaps one of the most embarrassing moments I've ever had in my life. At least you and, didn't chin it. <laughs> and you know, the, the strangest tough. thing was, I was in a I'd come back one weekend and I was telling somebody this story and this fellow was by the bar and I didn't know him from Adam back here in Wales. And he went, are you taking the piss out of me? And I went, what? sorry, mate, I don't know you. He said, what you've just been talking about? I said, yeah. He said, the same thing happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was brilliant. But yeah, moments like that, you think the social was unbelievable. You know, nobody yeah. can take it away. Yes, my career was cut short, um, but everything happens for a reason. Um, you know, I know I've spoken a little bit about it, but it was tough. I most probably had a tough six months, perhaps a little bit more, where you don't know what to do with yourself. You, know, you go to the snooker club, have a game of snooker, you gamble, you know, you lose quite a bit of money, waste a bit of money. Um, but I had my eldest boy, Reese. he was what was he, three to six months, perhaps a little bit older than that. Yeah, he would have been, he would have perhaps six months, nine months old. And um, I must admit, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have got through it because I sort of said, he's your future now. And slowly I started to take steps and just build myself back up. And But I had about six years out of football altogether. Um, did a bit of charity work, voluntary work, started working um, in some special schools, delivering sports and activities and things. And then once my boys got to about five, well, they were about five and seven, um, they started playing football and I got the bug back. So it's amazing what can get you sort of through things, isn't it? And just like, like you said, just having your, having your kids around just sort of gives you that motivation to get through something. Yeah, and then they're, they're ultimately, ultimately what get you back into, into the game as well. It's, it's mental really. Yeah, uh, Matty, Matty, sorry, we'll come to you after. Go on, Gareth. Yeah, it was the trick. It, it, it was everybody's got their own triggers that will get them back on track, uh, help them and support them, you know, whatever that may be. And it was my boys playing grassroots football because there is nothing like I don't care what anybody says, seeing your kids and other kids play with no pressure 
you know, running around with their peers, hitting the back of the net, running around cheering. And then I run my own, I ran their team. You know, I, I set up my own club and run my own team. And the pleasure of, you know, those smiles on kids' faces, you know, that's where the biggest audience is in football, you know, grassroots game. Yeah. And I, and I don't think we value it enough at times. Um, no, I agree. You know, that's where the real football fan and people who love it more than anything is that's where they are. And yeah, they got me back. They, 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 they got me on track, kept me on track. And lucky enough, you know, it, that, that sort of buzz and the bug coming back got me into the job that I'm doing now. That's brilliant. Yeah, go, go on, Matty. You had a point to, to come back to there. Yeah, I was just going to touch on when you had the ACL injury. Did you, I mean, I'm probably sure you did at the time. Did you go and seek any second opinion or did you just take the decision of the club that that's what it was and that was it sort of thing? Or Because really, I suppose if you look at it, you could have sued them for wrongful diagnosis. Negligence. Negligence, yeah. Well, do you know what? I should have, and it was the biggest mistake I know, and yeah. regret I've got. Um, maybe I was too nice. Yeah. Um, and I let, I let them get away with it. But I, the first surgeon was the jack of all trades. And then eventually I went to a chap called Di Reese uh, in Oswestry, North Wales. And he was most probably a pioneer really in, in, that's particular type of medicine, you know, of, and he was a knee specialist, had gone to America and he had just learned or played a part in growing. They started to put this sort of mold around the knee joint, but he said, I'd gone so far of what with the repair. So the second operation was done by him. He sort of tidied me up. And what he said to me was, I can get you through about 12 months max of football. So, but he said, you won't be able to play regularly. And he said, there's a chance that it'll tear. You'll have tear on that, but there'll be other soft tissue that will tear as well. Potentially other damage. And then when I sent, went to see him the third time, he said, you've got two options. We either do the full reconstruction where we put the mold around your joint because you're bone to bone and bone to bone bruising, they reckon is quite bad, especially on the knee joint. Um, he said, my advice to you is go out on medical grounds. Um, but back then, you didn't get big money for going out on for retirement. Yeah. Um, Even now, could you? is there not something you could do about that now? No, it's, it, it, I, I sort of asked it, I sort of went through the PFA um, yeah. and asked that question, you know, but no, time had just Too run out. And, yeah, and it would be, it'd be hard... It's always hard as well. I think I was sort of advised this. It's very hard. Doctor to doctor, they don't like to yeah. fight each other. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the conflict of that. So, but yeah, I, I was chuckling when you were sort of saying, because I had a little flashback to, I remember going for rehab at my first, um, after my first knee op, you'd go to Lillishaw. Yeah. Um, to the sport, sports cent, National Sports Centre there, where they used to do the old um, School of Excellence with England yeah. and all that. But you know, everybody used to go there, and all it was was it was a, a jolly up because <laughs> I, I think they were called Pete and Pauline. I think um, were like the physios, and they were amazing, and they'd work you so hard. But it was work hard, play hard. Yeah. So you'd be in the gym all day doing your rehab, and then all you do is just go down the pub down in um, down in Newport. I think. Sounds, sounds great. To be fair. Oh, it was unbelievable. 
I had some great times. And I go back to the club and go, oh, it's really working for me, Lilla Shawl. I think you need to get me back up there. <laughs> and like you, some of the names, like, you know, we, yeah, made some, made some good friends, you know, you, yeah. players like you played with, against, and then you'd have catch-ups, you know. And yeah, Lilla Shawl had a hell of a reputation for the rehabbing of injuries, but uh, the social life to go with it. Quality. Unbelievable. Go on, Greg. Uh, yeah, just to take you back to um, like your Reading, your Reading like days, and then into Swindon. Just like I know you didn't, you didn't really play loads of games then, because obviously you started to get your injuries and that. But just reading back some of the players that you were playing with at, at Reading, um, just wanted to ask what sort of they were like as well. There is a, there's another manager that you played with, Michael O'Neill. Um, he's obviously transitioned into management now. Um, was he exactly like Dean Smith and that? He just knew back then, sort of, he was the leader. Um, and then you've got your, your other Mark Robbins, your, uh, Phil Parkinson. Um, and it, it was, I think, well, I can only assume he would have been a young a young man at then, that point. And he, he ended up being in the Premier League for Portsmouth, was Limboy Primus. <laughs> well, I played with Limboy. And um, did he have drugs then? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> great lad, top, top lad. Uh, Parky, him, Ray Houghton was there with us as well. Um, and you you pick up certain things, you always remember some key details. Only. And I always remember we played against Birmingham and they had a player sent off and we couldn't break them down. And I remember Ray Houghton saying to somebody, I think it was one of our, I think it might have been Jason Bowen, somebody like that playing right wing. Go down injured because I need to get everyone together because he basically pulled us together on the pitch and said, right, we're not breaking them down. So we need to shift the ball quicker. We need to up, up, um, move the ball quicker to have better ball detail, ball speed, shift it to the right. I'll drop in here as the pivot and then we'll switch out and then we, we'll draw them out to leave space in behind. We ended up winning 3-1, but we lost Jason Bowen because he had to go off the pitch literally until back on, but we were only down to 10, you know, it was 10 v 10 then, but Ray Outen's game management was, we need to change this. Otherwise we're not going to get anything out of the game. So the skill set of somebody like Ray Houghton, his game management was phenomenal. And it was the same with, you know, Phil Parkinson, you know, he hasn't had the break in some of his, his clubs, but he's done well at certain clubs. And, but you understand why he's been, excellent as a manager as well because he was a leader and a general like that um but yeah your Linvoy Primus is um he was a good player Linvoy Primus yeah very steady do you know what he, he wasn't um and I hope this is taken in the right way he was never an eight nine or a ten very often but he was always a high seven to eight yeah or every he, week yeah he, and this, this sounds daft, but he was a very good six most of the time. <laughs> right? So nothing really pretty. You know, wouldn't have a bad game. Simple. No. Never, yeah, never stand but, out, but always no. does a job. And, and all, sometimes uh, under the radar. So when yeah. I say a very good six, he was just under that radar doing a very, very good job. And you need them players. Yeah. Uh, he, was, he was phenomenal, Limvoy. Very oh, neat uh, and tidy. Like, and if you speak to players, you know, people like... Um, you know, your Peter Crouches and you hear about him speak, you know, their time at Portsmouth, etc. Most players speak very highly of Limboy. 
Yeah, I've heard Crouchy actually mention him on his podcast as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also a real genuine guy. And not one of them. You know, he wasn't one of the drinkers and all that. He wasn't one of the party guys. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, I had a real buy-in to him as a person. Real nice guy. But we had some great characters there. Um, like I, one of the stories from Reading would have been, we used to go to the Cheltenham Festival, you know, there was a lady there used to get, uh, work for the brewery, got us tickets. And um, we went there the one, actually it was the same trip. So the first part of it was you'd go into the big Guinness marquee there and it was the size of a football pitch. Well, the day before we are on the Tuesday, it was always the Wednesday was footballers day. You'd always go on the Wednesday footballers day. So on the Tuesday, we didn't know this until after, but some ginger-eared lad, it must have been somebody from that the days when I was at Erieford for the ID parade. <laughs> right? Some ginger-eared lad had been going round touching women inappropriately, right? So I'd been spotted then when we arrived. Somebody had singled me out and gone, that's him. Next thing, these armed policemen surround me, right? I'm with all the Reading lads, cuffed, and put behind my back, and I marched through the Guinness Marquee. Well, can you imagine when there's thousands of lads in this Guinness Marquee? <laughs> and I'm getting absolutely lynched, right? All the Reading boys are going, what the hell's going on? Yeah. So anyway, luckily this the lady, um, Sue, they was, she follows us, gets us to the corner and says, look, explained everything, you know, what it was. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm getting marched out, handcuffed, everything by these armed policemen getting dragged out of the Guinness tent in the, in, at the Cheltenham Festival. And when I come back through, they uncuff me eventually when they realise they got the wrong guy. Start walking back through, and I'm getting absolutely hammered. Can you imagine? Because <laughs> like, there's always beer, booze is getting thrown in the air. People are pushing me around trying to get back. The bit of all the boys from different clubs hammering me like it was brilliant, but. We ended up back at, um, in a pub at Reading that night and I'm coming back. And as I'm walking back, this lad called Steve Swales, I'm carrying a tray of, of beer, like my round. As I'm coming back, he clips my feet. <laughs> as I go, I, I go and the beer goes, everything goes and I land and I'm, I'm absolutely covered. I was wondering, you ain't getting one over on me. He, he knows he's in the wrong and he's a, he's a little bit smaller than me and he knows I, I had that short fuse, the old ginger ear, the red mist come out. <laughs> and I'm chasing him right around the pub. It was like the Benny Hill show. <laughs> I catch up with him. I rugby tackle him. But as I rugby tackled him, I scrape, scrape my head on the, on the carpet and I've got this huge carpet burn that's <laughs> taken the skin off my forehead. Oh, <laughs> We play Huddersfield at home on Saturday. My first header, wallop, split the scab, everything all opens up. I've got claret all pouring over my head. They have to bandage me up. I look like Terry Butcher. You know, the, the famous <laughs> photo. I look like Terry Butcher. And the paper the following day. Uh, Reading lose 2-1. Davis... Uh, Battles with uh, battles with scars and all this, and nobody had a clue that it, they thought it was from the game. Yeah, somebody had opened up a wound <laughs> on my head with a, with, a, with the old elbow, and it wasn't. It was a carpet burn after after the Cheltenham <laughs> races. Like brilliant, isn't it? Ah, <laughs> uh, just you know, some of those days. Somebody reminded me about that about six months ago. But yeah, great times. But That's yeah, another club, great great characters. 
Um, and then I'll just go through like some questions that we, we've got as well, Gareth. Obviously, after retiring, coming through that and you got back into football after through your boys and whatever, what's that led on to now? Like, If you talk us through what you're doing now. Yeah, so March 2010, well, just before that, at the end, uh, the summer before that, um, I'd originally tr- gone to do my UEFA B licence in 1999 when I was at Swindon. And I never finished it because of my injuries. So then it ran out that I hadn't completed it. Got the bug back with the boys. And then in 2009, uh, June 2009, I went and did a, a B intensive course. So you could go there for a week. Um, you go for like a eight, nine days, very intense course. Uh, ex-players are uh, able to do that. Um, so it's a bit of a fast track because of the education you've got. Uh, I was able to get qualified. And then while I was on the course, um, there was a new role in the area I was living uh, coming up. And they said, look, you know, would you like to apply for it? You know, there's no guarantees as there isn't, you know, with interview. Um, But because I'd been running my own junior clubs, there was an opportunity just to become like a, what was then called a football development officer. So you did, you were multi-skilled. You did a bit of coach education. You did player development, looked after grassroots football, uh, women and girls, inclusion football. And it most probably one of my, the best time I've had in football in all my life, really, because you engage with so many people uh, and gave so many people opportunities to, to love the game. Um, but then in time, um, I suppose some of the bosses saw, certain qualities that I was delivering on and I started to grow then on the coach education pathway. And, and that's got me to the point now where I'm an A license, uh, tutor and assessor, um, lucky enough to work with some great staff. Um, I'm learning every day, you know, as cliche as that is every day's a learning day. If you want to learn, uh, I've got some great people around me. It's a fantastic organization. You know, we're not as brig, as English football, as the FA and the Premier League and all that, and what's singing and dancing in football. But you know what? We're a good nation. We're a, we're a family. You know, our, our values are family, respect and excellence. Um, and I think if you look after your football family, you know, you'll do all right. And, and in recent years, we've done well under Cookie, you know, under Chris Coleman qualifying, under Ryan now, you know, qualified again. Welsh football's in a good place, you know. We've got some, yeah, mate. you know, whether, but that all comes down from valuing people at grassroots level all the way to the, the elite end. Um, and I've got two roles, really. Um, slightly part-time with the under-17s, assisting a great coach and a great person in Richard Williams, who's the head of uh, player development within uh, our department. Um, he's, he's phenomenal. So... I've been able to work alongside him with the 17s now, uh, which has been great for about 18 months. I know we've missed things out, but the main part of my role is working on the A license. And, you know, we've, we've had some, you know, all sorts of characters come through that from different levels in the, uh, the Welsh game, uh, English pyramid, you know, to some of the, some world cup winners, you know, people like Thierry Henry has done our course, you know, um, Didier Man came on the course. You know, you've got Marcel Desailly. You know, 
some, you know, some yeah. great, you know, Arteta has done his course. We've had, you know, we've got a good reputation in, in coach education and, you know, you know, not saying that any other nation doesn't, but I think maybe because we're a smaller nation, we have a different perhaps sort of engagement with them. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a different way of working, if I could say that. And yeah, Oshan Roberts, who was uh, assistant to Chris Coleman and Gary Speed, God bless him, um, who knows working in, you know, Morocco as the technical director there. I hadn't been at the department long and he said, if you can work in a job that you love, you never work a day in your life. He said, that doesn't mean it's not hard work and challenging. Um, and I feel very honoured and privileged that I can play a part in growing Welsh football. That's you brilliant. Know, it man. is good. Yeah, every day is brilliant. It's, you know, and uh, meet some great people. Um, and they challenge you because footballers will challenge you because they've had a great, great education in the game. Especially people with the, the, the calibre and the names that you, you've mentioned there, that they've been there, seen it, done it. Do you know what I mean? They, they'll all have their own opinions from what they've taken throughout their, their experiences in the game as well. So they'll, they'll always challenge you, which, which has always got to be good. And it'll help you grow as well in, in, in your role. And they're good people and they'll always help you out, whether that's football related or something else in life. Uh, a young chap um, who lives not far away from me, went to the same school as me, 13 years of age, recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer. You know, and it only took a couple of phone calls to some of these people who've been on course. They all rallied around umpteen video messages from some of the top people in football. Brilliant. You know, being it, you know, Tim Cale, you know, engaging with Jamie Carragher, you know, um, a lad called, uh, well, Tony Pulis's son, uh, Anthony, uh, got in touch and got Kenny Dalgleish to do a video wow. for this young man. Um, so, do you know what? You'll always, there's so much bad press about people in football, but you know what? They're great human beings. Yeah, you know, great put the football the to one side. Do you know what? Because they've got kids, they've got family, and do you know what? Sometimes you know this all this stuff that happens on social media. Just be a little bit kinder because you wouldn't like it if it was your sister, mother, grandmother, daughter who was getting the same sort of flack. And you know what, footballers are—they're good people. It's a, it's a great industry to work in, yeah, and be a part of. I bet it is, mate. Yeah, go, go on, Greg. Just just to touch on what you said there, Gareth, like to be a lot more kinder in that, just as as people, because like now, people can sit behind that keyboard and do whatever they want, and the stories that you were saying, you know, like you were the villain on the pitch to them for that 90 minutes. But as soon as it was over, they'd clap you off or, and, you know, vice versa, like you, you know, you'd put your thumbs up to them and appreciate them for, you know, all the banter that you'd had on that 90 minutes. But then the turnaround now for the, what people can do and just sit behind the keyboards and literally hound someone. And then obviously, to the other extreme, well. yeah. And to the other extremes now where it's not just, over social media just saying oh you're this you're that it's death threats it's finding out stuff about them their personal like it's a joke now it's it's gone the other way from what you had experienced just 
having that banter on the pitch for the 90 minutes, and then just, you know, you move on. It's not about religion. It's not about race. It's not having ginger ale. It's not about, you know, what sexuality are. Do you know what? I went on an equality course and, you know, one of the slides said, we're 95% the same. It's only that bit on the outside that's very, very different. Do you know what? We're all human beings. Treat people with respect, you know, and just have that little bit of kindness about you. And if you haven't got nothing nice to say, don't write anything. You can have an you can have a constructive opinion about the way your striker has played today. You know, he's missed a couple of chances, but don't go and abuse someone because yeah, you wouldn't yeah. like it if it was somebody in your family. Don't get me wrong. I believe the paying fan always has a right to their opinion. Of course, yeah. That's that's their role in But as you say, how it's said and how how it's put yeah. across. That's fine to have the opinion, but to step over the line and do what some of these people are now doing is and the fact that these the platforms are not doing nothing about it. No. Um, I was listening today. Sorry, God. I was just listening today. Yeah, no, I was just listening today about what Brighton have done. Brighton have although the, these platforms like Twitter and that are not they're not policing it because they don't have to, apparently. But like Brighton have, have taken a step today to ban a fan for two years because of stuff that he was putting on online was was over the line, yeah. like stepping over the mark. And you got to you got to commend that. That that is good. But the, what, what, the problem with it is, it's going to have to fall on your likes of your Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, whoever to to do it themselves. Because all that's going to lead to, like with that Brighton fan, is people in his position will just create an anonymous profile because you can and just do it that way. Cause that's how a lot of these people do it. There's no identification to say who, who it is. You put a I think they've taken the privilege of him actually coming and watch the games when they're obviously we're back allowed. Yeah. That, that's what I mean. That's, that is brilliant, but yeah. you can't do that with these anonymous but online. Yeah. Anonymous. Online you can still be anonymous. Every account should just have you should you should have to if you want to sign up to this social media picture yeah. like you like you do to go on holiday you have all your information everything should be able to be traced back to you because yeah again all these people I mean it's it's, it's all anonymous and it's very rarely you see all these death threats and these negative comments and things like that <laughs> it's always from these people with no profile pictures or they got a picture of a it's just all they've probably got one follower or any just nothing they're just Silly accounts, but just not they're just looking for attention, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I just think it's you know, none of us are perfect, you know, we all make mistakes, we all do or say the wrong thing at times. But I think sometimes, you know, you're, you can all get caught up in the emotions of you know, in sport, you can get caught up. Football's a different beast to most sports, you know. I think, and I think because the money triggers that extra passion and demand that that the game actually brings out. But do you know what? Just have a little thought around, you know, who it may affect because yeah. it isn't just that player. If they've got children, the impact it has on them, you know, and you control the controllables because there are too many uncontrollables that you'll never be able to control in life. But yeah, I, that's the only thing I suppose that's disheartening really is, you know, you don't need to cross that line. But, you know, that's where maybe it's because the point I made earlier on, 
where fans could engage with a player after a game and speak face-to-face, person-to-person. You know, this day and age, you can hide behind a keyboard, you know, and and slate somebody because they they haven't got that engagement. And maybe that is the fault of the game in some ways, you know, but social media has become such a, a modern way of engaging and communicating people have just taken it to a depth but how do you manage it you know it's um, something's got to give because you know people have taken their own lives over it because of the hate you know yeah. and I just think that's when somebody takes their own life then something's got to give it's, yeah it's punish, it's it's punishing a lot of people you know and a lot of people then have got to live with that for many many years to come um, and I think it's really sad. It is, um, and it just ruins all the good work that's going on. Yeah, because there's plenty of that, but it just doesn't get the the attention. No, it doesn't. You know, and and we can all have opinions. You know, you know the big media topic that's been on this week. Do you know what? We can all have opinions over it. Do you know what? It's been said. Let them all go away now. Respect them as a family to go and solve the problem. Yeah. You know, but the problem is people will be nasty about it. Of course they will. It's, it's, it's a, you know, an uncontrolled. But, you know, just something you said in the middle of it, you know, I think you said about Reading somebody, you know, Alan Pardew, what a top manager he was, you know, and what, you know, just relating back to what I was like as a person. And I was always the joker, always up to no good, you know, hiding people's clothes, tying people's toe laces, uh, t- tying people's shoelaces. <laughs> Together, hammer and nail, going in the the groundsman's shed, getting a load of ham, uh, nails and hammering someone's shoes to the floor, like so they come in after training, you know, and it's great little bits of banter like that. Um, and Pardew knew I was always like that, but he loved it because it was that bit of team spirit when we're at Reading. But he said, "There's two Gareth." He said, "There's Gareth is always like that off the pitch," but he said when he crosses that white line. And he's preparing for that game. You know, that's what he liked. He, he liked that in me as a character. And actually, when he then, when I left Reading, he also left at the same time when Tommy Burns came in. And I'd just done my knee. And he would have liked to have taken me back to Reading. And again, my journey could have been very different again. Yeah. But as they say, life's not a rehearsal. You know, yeah. you've, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. I had a little bit more you know, of a rough pathway. It was more damaging than perhaps most would have. If you overthink it, it can affect you. But I, I'm i still in the game. I feel very honoured and privileged. You know, um, you know, like I said, I worked with Sav. You know, played with Sav with the 21s. And 18 months ago or so, I was working with his son. You know, and to go back through that cycle, you know, and, and catching up with Sav and... It was great because our under-17s who qualified from that tournament to go to the elite finals and we never got the chance to go and play in them. Um, we took Holland to the wire in that in our qualification. We only lost 2-1 to them and, uh, you know, most probably ranked in the top four in the world. And for little old Wales, you know, to be part of that, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a coach, manager, player, you know, whether you're the kit man, if you can play a part in football, it's a great industry to be working in. Yeah, no doubt about it. 
Um, what's Charlie like? Sorry, just quickly. What's Charlie like? Is he good? Because like, I'm a United yeah. fan. Obviously, I, I know I know he's there. I just and obviously, yeah. Is is he got has he got a realistic chance or? Well, as a United fan from down, you know, south of England, that's where we're all from. You've seen some pictures on the internet and <laughs> things like that. Have no, you? I've, I've, I've seen, I've seen my football manager. He's in, he's in my under twenty three. He's a football manager. Um, I'm not in a position to really comment about him as an individual, as I wouldn't with any player. I've but, just never seen him play, really. But yeah, obviously, it, yeah, he's he's going to have a good career. You know, yeah. he's. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to. Yeah, is I can't he, is say he, anymore. He's he, he, he centre mid as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he's, um, he? you know, great athlete, great energy, great. You know, he's a very talented footballer. But anything more than that, I professionally, because oh, of my yeah. role, I couldn't really yeah. say. Has he got his dad's barnet and all? I, I'll tell you one thing. He's got a piece. Say, and a credit to to Robbie and and you know, you know Charlie's mum. What a lovely, polite young lad. And do you know what? It you know. One of those, please. I must. That's what I would say is please and thank yous, good manners, respect. Would always pick up a drinks bottle, you know, when the bus got back to the hotel, picking up equipment, things like that. Um, so that's most probably as a family they've installed, which you'd like to think all families would do, but it's most probably standards that Man United, yeah, actually want their players to deliver daily, showing that little bit of respect. So, but also, I must have. That's not just Charlie. That's what we install as part of our culture under the FAW as well. Yeah. Robbie being a youngster at Man United, he would have had that as well. Obviously, in that team that he played in, the same sort of culture as what you did had that he was doing the jobs. And like what you are with your kids, he would, yeah, he would have, he's, he's obviously done that as well. And it's just showing now, obviously, you know. Great words from you about who he actually is as a person rather than the player as well. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's, you know, that all comes back to them as a family and that yeah. comes to them uh, and what the club are installing in their young players as well. Um, and most clubs, if not all clubs, would all say, but most probably there's different levels of what people are delivering and, and you know, what their values are within the club, you know. Uh, but it doesn't matter whether you're a million pound, multi-million pound organisation or you're a lower level sort of League Two club who struggles financially. Do you know what? All those things that don't, the most important things in life don't cost a penny. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you are on that tier of football, in that pyramid. Do you know what? We can all be good people and, you know, help your teammate. You know, don't walk past a bit of rubbish, pick it up just because it's not yours. You know, do the things that are important in life. And I think we'll see, by doing that, you'll see better people than better footballers. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, and just to finish off, Gareth, I've just got a list of sort of questions just based on, on your career um, that we'll just run through quickly. So um, first one is the best player you ever played with. That's a really hard one. Gareth Graham um, sitting there now going. <laughs> yeah. I call him junior. Um, <laughs> do you know what? I, I think it'd be disrespectful to, to call anyone out. Um, I feel really honoured and honoured and privileged to have played with everyone that I I was on that team sheet with from one to 13 and one to 16 as, as the squads grew. 
Um, yeah, I, I I wouldn't single anyone out as as yeah, nah. as my teammates because I think everybody all played a part in. I played a part for them and they played a part for me. Nah, fair point. I like that. Um, best player you played against in different ways, really. Most probably King Cladzi for for you know as a young player. You know your fashion news, those type of players in a different way. Um, I played against Ian Rush when he was coming to the end of his career and he played for Wrexham, but his half yards were unbelievable. Um, yeah, so there was a variety of centre forwards. That Some names there. Yeah, but I tell you what, some of the best times I had was when I was in the under-21s because we were like the B team. You played the same fixtures in qualifiers as the national team. Ah, so on a Monday or sometimes a Tuesday, we'd play a Lem v. Eleven practice match against the first team. So if you could imagine back then, the Wales teams of the 90s, you had Saunders, Rush, Hughes, Giggs, Speed. You know, that's yeah. ridiculous. You know, so I know it was only a practice match, but I was, I was better than playing against anyone else. I bet. Yeah. You still played against them. Oh, what a front line that was, you know. Um, quality side then yeah it's as uh, yeah unbelievable group of players and yeah we, we actually we were laughing uh, we had a team meeting with the FAW with uh, all the intermediate coaches the other day and uh, Paul Bowden is the under 21s coach and when we were at Reading because I mentioned Robbie Keane with that story about Crouch and we played against Wolves the one game and I've taken the ball put the ball out for a goal. Uh, it's come off him. Got a ball's gone out for a goal kick, but he's making out Robbie Keane is that he, I've, I've tripped him and he's gone down for a penalty. He's rolling around. As I've got up, I've just rubbed his hair and sort of pushed him a little bit and he's given it one of these. So I've just ran off. The linesman starts flagging and the linesman goes, one number five, he pulls over Paul Bowden. Now, Paul Bowden looks nothing like me. Paul Bowden at the time, I think he had a moustache. Yeah, he hasn't got ginger here. Very different build to me. He's been playing left back. I'm playing on the right side, right sided centre back. So I'm in a different area of the pitch as well. Paul Bowden's only ever sending off in his whole career, and it wasn't anything to do with him. And he's, no. he never lets me forget it. But the best thing was Brilliant. Terry Bullivant at the time. We were short on centre backs, but we had somebody to fill in at left back. Paul Bowden was banned for three games. He missed out on his match appearance fee for three games. He had to take the hit. I still played. I got my appearance fees. <laughs> and he, so it was a double whammy on him. And he'll never let me forget it. <laughs> I don't think I would, to be fair. No, absolutely brilliant. Who <laughs> um, was the worst trainer? Oh, do you know, that again... I've seen some shockers over the years, but <laughs> do you know what? They're normally back then years ago. I couldn't, I'm not going to put anybody out there, but I would say it was normally some of the flair players. Well, we had Jonathan Douglas on um, a few weeks ago and he said he played with Mark Hughes and he said, if you saw Mark Hughes in training, you would never know out like that. He was as good as what he was. He said, it was only when it comes to the game he said in training, it would you'd sort of think like all he'd be interested in doing would be volleying. He said it yeah. doing his volleys. Other than that, he said just. I would say normally, 
the flare or the or your your poachers would just tick over, and then at the end of the session, then they'd go and do their individual stuff, and then they'd come alive, like Jonathan Douglas has said. Yeah, that that's when they it was when they would a bit like a golfer putting they they came alive when they they were just going through their own little bits of imagery of how to hit the net or a flare flare player you know like somebody like George Indar you know play out wide and he he you know get a couple of mannequins or slalom poles and just go in and then run down the line whip a ball in chop cut back whatever it may be but i'm not saying George and Dar was a good training player. I'm, yeah. I, I'm digging you out there, George, and I didn't mean that. But what I'm trying to say is, I would say normally it would be just those those flair players or the poachers who would just hide a little bit in training, but they were more about their own individual games. Yeah. More so. But yeah, nobody... I Over the years, I never saw anybody really, really... Not a complete standout, yeah. Back it off, you know. Um, hardest player you ever played with? I tell you, it was tough. David Opkin was tough. He was a hard man. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Love he, that. yeah love David Opkin. Tough man. And do you know what? A talented footballer as well. He was quality. Like he scored a hell of a goal against Leicester, you know, in that cup final in Wem- at Wembley. Um, but again, top man as well. But he was, you know, he had that real Celt about him. You yeah. Know, hard school sort of upbringing in Scotland, you know, had that rough sort of Scottish voice. Um, yeah. I remember Hoppy once rupturing his ankle ligaments and how he stayed on the pitch. He was at Palace and how he stayed on the pitch and literally he was just bouncing around and then the ball would come to him and he'd still do something good or he'd still want to make a tackle, you know, but they were trying to drag him off, you know, the management that he stayed on and brilliant. Yeah, tough, tough cookie. Yeah, that's proper hard. Getting playing through that. Yeah. <laughs> um, hardest player you played against? Yeah, I've said it. It's got, it's got to be Fashion. He was he was a monster. He was a beast. Um, but then I think his name was Steve Torpy. Um, he played for Swansea City, Bristol City, and it was when he was at Bristol City. In all the years I was playing. He was the only player that ever got in my head and I couldn't mark him. And he knew it as well. <laughs> and yeah, nobody ever, ever got the better of me. But psychologically, I don't know what it was. And it used, it used to wind me up. It used to fret me so bad. I used to get so frustrated. But he, So in a different way, I would have to give him credit I'm sure it was was Steve Torpy. Surname was Torpy. I'm sure it was Steve Torpy. But he was the only player that... So I've got to give him credit that actually most probably mentally the toughest player I played against. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell you what he was very good at and not many strikers ever did it and they still don't. Is running out of the corner of your eye. Because most centre forwards will come from behind you which you can deal with and they, they stand in front of you. But come in... From Russia. side on, yeah. across you, and you th- and and that's most probably what it was. Thinking he was going to come across me, and he's and I remember him laughing as well because he knew me. He had me, in the, and that was horrible knowing that you were in his pocket. <laughs> <laughs> that realization, oh, wow. you know, oh, fuck. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <Not> him again. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, put me off the game so much, I didn't even want to kick him. I was that mad. (laughs) (laughs) The the biggest diva. Oh, do you know what? That's. Again, do you know what? I'm not going to dig anyone out because. (laughs) Do you know what, right? Splinters in your ass. That's 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 fucking big, isn't it? I'll tell you why I won't I won't say I would never dig anyone out. And the reason why I wouldn't is because if you've got yourself, doesn't matter what for you to be a footballer, you've got certain qualities. And even when you're a diva, do you know what? They're they're that luxury sometimes in the team that they, they must be doing something right. Mm. So I might give them a little bit of hard time because they haven't chased back 10 yards, but then I might tell them. If you don't make that run again, I'll I'll have you on Monday in training, you know, or I'll rough you up at half time. Yeah. You know, so you knew you could manage them to a certain point. But yeah, again, most probably some of the flair players, you normally didn't have it from the, the rough tough yeah, exactly. defenders. But yeah, I might have called them a diva at the time, but I wouldn't dig them out because to be a footballer, they've invested so much to get where they are. Yeah. And they have brought something to the team. So there was a reason why they were divas too. Yeah, true. You know, you know um, because on the flip side, I was most probably a liability when I was getting sent off. <laughs> so on the you know, so as much as they're a pain in the backside for being a little bit of a diva at times, I'm a pain in the backside because I put my team down to 10 men. Yeah. <laughs> it's the other end of the, yeah. the spectrum, isn't it? Um, funny man. Oh. Too many to say. Honestly, football is full of jokers. Um, I must admit, one of the fun, and I, I've been lucky enough to work with Peter Crouch on his coach education, and he has got to be the funniest guy I think I've ever met in my life. Really? He's, he's so dry, and everything's off the cuff. Um, <laughs> top, top ad. Um, I'm sure you won't mind me t- telling this story. There was somebody on our course and um, there was somebody showing a picture about an NFL guy, you know, and big, you know, NFL guys, you know, a bit like the fridge, bulked up, top athletes, huge legs and all that. And Peter was still in like his training kit from the day and we were just around the hotel. And and he got the gist, obviously, of um, of what was going on about this this NFL guy. And he went, let me have a look at that picture. And he's looked at it and gone, hmm, big guy. He went, NFL? And he pulls his shorts up and Pete's not got... He went, Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got these legs, like, you know, and, and he's, you know, he's not a big, muscly guy, is he? By no means, Pete. But it was so... Just something so dry. You know, and the, the place just erupted with laughter, you know, because you've got this big, strong athlete and then Pete's Crouchy. like, just take it... He, he he jokes about himself, doesn't he? He does, yeah. Which, which is a great quality that brings and draws people in. But yeah, yeah. After Not somebody I played with, but... You still, yeah, you still come across him, didn't you? Oh, yeah. just, yeah. Funny, funny guy. Oh, I love Crouch. Well, there's that famous quote of his, isn't there, when they, they said to him, what would you be if you... if you <laughs> What would you be if you was never a pro- professional footballer? And he said, a virgin. <laughs> oh, he's... Great show. But you know what? what he's... he's we we speak now and again, you know, 
because of the coach education. And if he was one of those that um, did a video for me, uh, oh, lad. And uh, class act as well, then. Uh, he is, you know, but then he's one of many, you know, a lot of classy people in the game that, yeah. you know, a lot of people get bad press, like I said, but yeah, a lot of good people in football. And yeah. like I said, I'm lucky enough to work with some great people in the FAW. Yeah, too right, mate. Um, which manager was the best in training, like when they took part? Pards was decent. Yeah. yeah. Alan Pardew was very good. Um, most of the others, yeah, not really that I was... Um, I tell you was good because he played to an old age and he loved putting it on you as well in training. It was Jimmy Quinn. All right, yeah. At Northern Ireland International. Um, and he was a good bloke as well. Quite funny him as well. Um, but he'd like joining in the five sides because he kept himself fit because we used him a little bit as a player. He, play, swing, he played at, yeah, at 40. I think he played oh. in the championship at 40 years of age, I think. Um, but he, he loved mixing it up in, in like small sided games. Yeah. Good, decent player. He was yeah as well. Based on sort of like the initiation songs that go around the game at the, at the moment, best singer you've heard. Me, <laughs> Rick, Rick Astley. Prove it. Oh, hello. Prove it. How's that go? Yeah, you know, never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. <laughs> never going to run around and desert you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 yeah that's my karaoke song, that is. <laughs> yes, Gareth. You was, you was just getting into it, and I'm glad yeah. you've stopped now. <laughs> I, was expect, I was expecting you to give, never going to give, never going to give. But we, <laughs> we should have all come in, shouldn't we? Yeah, yeah. We've known each other. <laughs> so long. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. What a tune, by the way. What a yeah, tune. Absolutely. Yeah, a great, <laughs> hey, a always tune. pulls the crowds up, doesn't it? That oh, one. It does, yeah. It's a classic. <laughs> yeah, um, th this one, you can sort of take it at, at, at however you want. <laughs> Biggest <laughs> dick you ever played with? Tabby. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, right? This was one of the scariest things I ever came across in my life. <laughs> There was a lad called Leroy May with me at Hereford. And I'm not saying it. I'm not going into detail because it would be inappropriate, right? But I always remember we, we played in an FA Cup game. Um, we were away, away somewhere down in South London. And, well, I woke up and he hadn't worn anything to bed. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. And so, so, so but, oh, we was... <laughs> you know, and I start. I, I always, I always hashtag him the snake. Now love him. He's about, <laughs> well, what a great guy, nice guy, but yeah, you know, put me to shame. Lucky bastard. <laughs> yeah, put me to shame. Nice guy, but yeah, that was a scary image. That as eighteen year old, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Another <laughs> initiation. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be worn up in the bed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to want nothing out. <laughs> nice. And no, but and do you know what? If, like I said, if you look at it on the other side, because I know what angle you were going at, so I, I tried to keep that nice and appropriate. Um, <laughs> but yeah, 
I think at times that was the only thing that did my head in sometimes in football, some of the selfish idiots. So some of the idiots, you know, they were self-centered. Um, again, I wouldn't, wouldn't repeat who they are, but interestingly, you know, somebody might say that about me, you know, you can be flavor of the month. You, yeah. People might like you. They may like, might not. That's life. No different in football. Yeah, no, you're um, right, mate. And what, um, you know, there's only two of you I've, I've really bought into tonight. The other two I don't like either. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we get that all the time. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and last but not least, best mates in football. And can you get them on the podcast for us? Um, yeah, I'll tell you somebody, I, I haven't spoken to him for a while through um, COVID. To be fair, I'll tell you one thing about footballers. You don't have to be best mates and on the phone yeah. every day, every week. But I'll tell you something about footballers. You can go long, long periods, make a call, and you might be even 20 years, but it'll be like yesterday when you catch up. And there'll be the same respect and all that. But if there was one standout, um, it would be a lad who's at Palace with Simon Roger. Uh, oh, yeah. Charlie Roger, yeah. Unbelievable footballer. Top man. Uh, big mate of mine. I was best man Brilliant. at his wedding. Um, still friends, you know, but he, well, actually he moved up north and, you, you know, you sort of lose touch a little bit and with work and different things. But yeah, yeah. Um, Top lad Simon Roger and I and you know people like all the Palace boys would would say the same you know somebody again who came through non-league football yeah. got himself into the game and what a career he had what a left peg great attitude oh, yeah. um, and somebody actually that Steve Coppel absolutely loved to bits Jolly was one of his boys like you know he took him took him everywhere with him you know and thought the world of him but yeah best mate Simon Roger quality. I think we spoke about him on previous one, actually. I can't remember who... We did touch on him, didn't we? Because I, I, he was one of my... I used to have a season ticket for Palace, like, you know, as well. Being a Man United, die-hard United fan. I did have a season ticket for a couple of years. Um, and he he was one of my favourite players. Like you say, he's left he's left foot. And I'm sure he used to have some, like, silver and blue Mizunos or so. He used to have, like, some flashy... But I never, I'd never forget. I don't know what brand they were, they, you know, but... Yeah, and they signed him from Bognor, didn't they? I think That's they, yeah, right. they got yeah, yeah, because yeah. um, yeah, cause, well, I love I love Bognor. Bognor's one of my favourite cities <laughs> in the world. Only because only because of Butlins, though. But yeah, it's um, you had to get that in, didn't you? You had to. Get but um, no, Simon Butlins. Yeah, what, what a player! Hall, I just yeah, what I say, love you left foot. Lo- yeah, loved him in there really. Yeah, well, like I said, <laughs> um, got lots of great friends um from everywhere that I played at. Um, and what I tell you, what is nice working in the job that I am, because a lot of those ex-players could become coaches, and yeah. then they, some of them will have done their coaching uh, licenses with us, uh, with the FAW, even before my time. And every three years, they have to revalidate to keep their, you know, their license live. Um, so you're able to every year on a cycle, you're always picking up with you know people. And not always close friends. Sometimes people you've just engaged with at different times. So, you know, you're very lucky to actually, you know, still be involved in those sort of environments. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, lots of good friends in football. That's quality, mate. And yeah, that, that brings us to the to the close of the, the chat anyway, mate. Um, it's been ages. 
Yeah, it probably has. I don't even know. I've Two and a half. Hell, that I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, that was superb, Gareth. Really appreciate it, mate. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, yeah, best of luck with with everything you're sort of going through at the moment with your coaching and that. And um, yeah, thanks for everyone who, who's watched on YouTube. Make sure you slap a like on the video, subscribe to the channel. And um, yeah, until next time. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. Gareth. Thank you, mate.